to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 719. I'm Jim McDowell here in the U.S. and with me across the pond in merry old England, Richard Jowett. Good evening, Rich. Evening, Jim. We've got three days to go until race action starts, so getting very, very excited. It hasn't been a particularly long wait, because obviously there isn't much of an off-season now, is there? But um, it's still nice to know that they're going to be sort of turning wheels in anger uh, in a matter of, what, 36 hours or so. Yes, they will be. They will be running on the island, probably the greatest racetrack that we race on. But uh, I would like to take this moment to thank everyone who has continued to support the show throughout the time, uh, everyone on Patreon and everyone who goes through the PayPal window. If you could donate to the show, we'd greatly appreciate it. You can go to our website, www.motopodcast.com. There are links to PayPal and Patreon on the site, and you can donate for as little as $2 US. So... If you can't donate to the show, we understand. That's great. If you like the show, awesome. But if you could, please go to your favorite podcast player, put a review there, give us a rating. That way it'll help us go to the top of the list, hopefully, and more people will be able to find the show and enjoy it. And with that advertisement out of the way, Rich, it's like you said, so close. So let's kick it off because they're the first people that are going to be up. Let's kick it off with World Superbike. Fill us in on what we know about World Superbike and this weekend's events in PI. Well... They have just concluded two days of testing, which is a fairly regular thing. I think PI has been pretty much the season kickoff. Obviously, there was an interruption with COVID, but it's been the kind of the inaugural event of the World Superbike season for a while. So they've traditionally had a couple of day tests down there. So that's all same as. And last year was effectively Bautista versus Johnny Ray versus Toprak Razgatioglu. I think this year is going to be a bit more competitive than that in terms of the number of people that are vying for race wins. I still think those three people are going to be predominantly the ones that are at the front. I mean, there are a couple of headline sort of standouts in terms of the testing. So I'm looking at the pre-practice two, which was the second of the days where most people, I think, set their fastest time. So perhaps unsurprisingly, Alvaro Bautista was quickest, but Domi Agata was second on the... Let's say not fully works Yamaha squad. Uh, he rides in the GRT squad. I'm not going to say the whole name because it goes on and on like these names for teams do these days. But that is a stunning performance by Domi Agata, double Supersport world champion on a Yamaha. So he's at long last got his full kind of call up to the big class. You know, he didn't quite manage it in MotoGP, obviously. Did he do a, a wild card on the Suzuki last year? I've got a feeling he did at some stage, didn't he? When Joanne Mir was out That's so long ago rich yeah i, I know five minutes ago <laughs> back in the dim and distant past anyway he's got this chance in world superbike so he turned in the second fastest lap in testing um michael ruben ronaldi on the other uh, ducati not such a surprise i guess but he was third and then andrea locatelli again that's a slight surprise i know we always say and you we must caveat that testing can't be taken with too much seriousness because you don't know how hard people are pushing and particularly in this case because obviously the first race weekend for world superbike as we say we're recording this on wednesday afternoon stroke evening for you and i jim so the guys will be out on track in free practice one on friday morning so obviously the test is quite close to the race weekend starting so nobody wants to chuck it up the road and bust a wrist or twist an ankle or anything like that so we must caveat these results but then in fifth place you've got remy gardner rookie into mm-hmm. the class on the yamaha again yeah remy's gonna do well in world superbike i think that environment is going to suit his personality i think after the slightly turgid season more from the sort of off track than the on track or equally off track and on track i would say 
with the Tech 3 team last year in MotoGP. I think this is going to be a refreshing, lighter sort of way to ply his trade. And obviously it's home ground for him. So yeah, I mean, I won't go on about it too much. Obviously the, the real proof of all of this is going to be in the race results at the weekend. But Philip Ertel was doing really well. He was seventh. Uh, even Danilo Petrucci popped up there. The only kind of cautionary tales I think in all of this really are that BMW so far and bearing in mind it could be a PI specific issue but BMW do not appear to have made the kind of progress that they would have been hoping to make uh, over the winter so I think Scott Redding ended up fastest overall might be wrong it might be Michael Vandermark but they were kind of not troubling the upper parts of the top 10 let's put it that way so that doesn't look too good uh, Lecoona and Vieje equally on the Hondas, not looking too stellar at the moment. And I mean, there's one or two sort of outliers. I mean, you've got Tom Sykes that came back to World Superbikes. I think possibly a bit of a questionable move, really, at the stage of the career that he's at, not doing sterling work there. So, yeah, I mean, hard to predict from there, but. I think this is going to be a very, very good season in World Superbike. And I do see kind of almost slight echoes given the range of bikes and the range of riders and the strength and depth that we've got in World Superbike now. And it's taken a few years to get to this point, bearing in mind, you know, we've had those years of the kind of the Michael Schumacher dominance with Johnny Ray and stuff where he just won back-to-back titles and people kind of switched off. I think we're kind of almost, I don't want to sort of get accused of hyperbole here, but this feels a little bit like mid to late 90s where you've got a lot of riders that could win races this year. And it's going to give MotoGP a bit of a run for its money in terms of entertainment value, I think, World Superbike. So I'm really, really looking forward to the season getting going. Yep, I do enjoy me some World Superbike. Especially, it comes and goes for me. When it's close racing, I'm there. When it's one brand, one make, one name, I tend to shy away and be more in tune to MotoGP. But that's World Superbike. Yep. So Moto America, uh, just real quick, guys, I do want to do a Moto America testing update thing. But just to give you some numbers real quick, they were testing at Button Willow and Gagne was fastest. I think we all would expect that. But the cool part was that Cambobier was second. So it was a 141.2 versus a 142.1. I do think that Moto America is looking better uh, this year than it has in previous years. Just because Cam has come back, Gagne has this thing together, Cam Peterson. Bobier's teammate is obviously going to be quick. And we got Tony Elias back. By my count, about seven guys you can win races on any given day. So this should be, hopefully, really good. Oh, and one last bit of news for Umoto America fans. Hayden Gillum has signed on to ride and try to win the King of the Baggers championship this year. So that's going to be interesting. Uh, so I've never seen King of the Baggers live at the tracks that I've been able to go to. They're not racing there. It does seem slightly odd, but somehow I am very intrigued by it. So I'll have to try to make it to a round that has one of those races. So that is a quick news update there. I guess we should talk about this point first and the last bit of news. It's a bit of a little, uh, shall I say, Twitter spat, Rich? Is that a polite way to put it? That's probably fair. Yeah. So. Hopefully you all have had time to listen to the interview that Rich and I were able to conduct with Maddie uh, Patterson, nay uh, Scordia. Now, like I said, Rich has said many times over, she had that fascinating article about why Suzuki quit. And we sat down and talked to her. And after that, there were some 
I will say comments that I think are unjust and undeserved about her that has been spread. Rich and I want to take a minute here just to sort of set the record straight. I think it's okay if you want to be a keyboard warrior. That's your prerogative. But the fact is that Maddie was extremely professional. And she had ideas and views about things that go on in that paddock that only she can say because she has is there in the paddock with these riders and teams. Her insight was incredible. She also understands the marketing side of MotoGP and basically called it out that a marketing plan is promoting the product and not promoting Valentino Rossi because Valentino Rossi is now no longer racing with us. So her insight and her ability to do all that was in-depth, was poignant, and she had not only problems, but solutions. And probably more importantly, as a woman, she had ideas of how to make the sport more popular with women, which is one of the things the fan survey has wanted us to do. So in that case, I think we need to take a step back and either re-listen to that interview or think twice maybe before we put some stuff out there. That's not really the case. Yeah, well said, Rich? Jim. Uh, I don't have a huge amount to add to that. I think, you know, we don't want to go down the rabbit hole of getting into, you know, endless spats on Twitter because, you know, it uses up a lot of time, uses up a lot of energy and nobody really moves forward. I mean, we live in an age where people think that their opinion is factual. I mean, that's, you know, one of the worst aspects of social media. As you've said, Maddie is in that paddock. She gets to talk to the stars of MotoGP and all you know the other series that run there. So I don't know of a person better placed than her to make a comment about the sport that we talk about from our armchairs, let's say, week in, week out. I mean, she has a level of insight that we don't have. So it's important that we bring people like her uh, and others onto the show as much as we can. Now, we are trying to navigate a tricky path with regards to social media because you know, the, the podcast world is very crowded with regards to motorcycle racing. You know, all the time new podcasts are popping up and, you know, Motopod's been around a long time. You know, I think probably in fairness, we've been a little bit guilty of having a Bernie Eccleston on this one and not perhaps keeping up as much as we should have done. So we're trying to be a little bit more engaged on Twitter. We've just launched an Instagram account. So again, please subscribe to that because we'll try and put some stuff out, particularly as the seasons get going and we get to uh, attend a few races. But further into social media you go, the more of this sort of stuff you're going to encounter. So we're not going to feed the flames. We're not going to sort of chuck oxygen on this, other than to say that, you know, it was a little bit disappointing, a a few of the comments that came back. And to be fair, I mean, as Motopod, we didn't really engage too much in it. Uh, A a response to go back to one person via the official Motopod Twitter feed. Uh, It was more kind of Maddie and uh, Simon, her husband, who are famously very sort of combative on social media, and they don't take any messing around. We don't want to sort of get too combative in that sort of way. But, you know, the couple of people that did put a couple of negative and, well, misogynistic, as far as I read them, uh, well, just rude and disrespectful, and let's just say it for what it was, really, uh, weren't names that I recognise. Certainly nobody that I'm aware of has ever contributed anything, uh, be it content or financially, to the show. So, you know, we'll take that with a pinch of salt and just chalk it down to people that, as you say, Jim, it's very easy to criticise with, you know, a level of anonymity that social media provides i mean for all i know it might have been a bloody twitter farm in russia doing it you know who was <laughs> to say but anyway that was slightly disappointing but at the end of the day you know maddie raised some points and we asked some specific questions to not provoke but to tease out you know these issues which 
have been brought to light in certain areas. They're not necessarily to do with the racing, but they are to do with the sport, and therefore they're relevant to talk about because all we want, all of us, I think Maddie said this herself, we just want this sport to grow and to be the best it can possibly be. So we don't want to go down sort of the wokedom rule. Uh, that's not what we want. But it's better to talk about these things than to pretend they don't exist if they do. So that's all we're trying to do, really, and we'll have other people coming on. We're really trying hard this year as hopefully all the listeners and the fans are seeing, to bring on as many different people as possible, riders, commentators, some team people, et cetera, et cetera, from all different classes, just to get the whole kind of gambit of the sport. And hopefully that's good for people, and hopefully most people will respond to that positively. So I think that's my bit on it, and I don't think we need to say any more, Jim. But, you know, overall, we just want people to be respectful, by all means, be critical if it's a constructive form of criticism, but don't trash talk and just kind of insult people because you can. I mean, that doesn't achieve anything. So, you know, we want engagement. We want more fans. We want more listeners. We want more subscribers. We want to get a couple of commercial sponsors on board. So to, to achieve all of those things that will allow us to do more as a podcast and to, you know, really fight amongst what is a very busy ecosystem, as we said, you know, we need to do more of this sort of stuff, but just do it in the right way. So, you know, that's the path we're on and hopefully we'll keep on that in as positive a way as we can. All right, let's talk about what we really want to talk about. Yes. MotoGP testing that happened in Sepang. Let's just go down alphabetically by the teams. We'll put the satellite teams sort of at the end Mm -hmm. and we'll go through it. So let's start with Aprilia in there. These are just general 30,000 foot level details that Rich and I have pulled out here. This is, we're not lap time analyzing anything. We're just trying to analyze the teams, where they are and how they sit. So going with Aprilia, they are, in my opinion, the second best bike on the grid right now. Yeah. Bar none, right? They are in amongst the Ducati horde, which is probably the nicest way to put that. They're... Wasn't a lot that they did. Uh, they did have a couple of runs there with uh, Aleish and Vinales that they did put in some times. Uh, I think uh, the top nine, uh, seven of the top nine were all Ducatis. Guess with who the other two were? Well, that was the Aprilias. Yep. And it's very likely, in my opinion, that you're going to see Aleish and uh, Maverick on the podium, near the podium in these first flyaway rounds because the bikes are that good. Now, one thing that we know is that even the RNF squad showed really well. Oliveira had a couple of flyers in there. He looked really good in the rain. I think Oliveira is probably the best rain rider on the grid. Debatable, right? But I mean, he's definitely one when it rains. You think he's going to be near the front, right? I think Bender's kind of in that vein. Yeah. You could have a couple other people in there as well. Miller. Miller definitely in that vein as well. So the RNF squad is even looking looking well. And I think they could spring a surprise early on. I do think Oliveira has a shot. If it's raining somewhere early on, I think he's got a shot at a win there. I think he's got a shot at podiums as well. So everything looking peachy keen there. And if you wanted something to hang your hat on and say, yeah, well, Aprilia might be, be this, but they need to do this. Well, they don't even have their 2023 race engine in the bike yet. That was a, that was a 2022 engine. In a 2023 bike. So there's still some dyno work and things going on as to my understanding. So it's very possible that they found some more horsepower and more top speed out of that engine as well. I can't wait to see what happens with the Aprilia squad in terms of works Mm -hmm. and satellite. I, I think it's the most fascinating brand 
on the grid this year. And the reason I say that is because, I don't know, I'm hoping I'm not doing him a disservice, but I just wonder if last year was Alicia Spargo's shot at the championship and it didn't quite work out. I'm not quite sure I'm convinced that he's going to have that kind of a year this year. And he's already made a couple of noises about the fact that he doesn't want to race on for too much longer. You sort of get the feeling that in the most positive way you can say that he's sort of slightly on the downslope of his career now and he wants to go on as high as he can, but I don't really see a championship in there. I mean, the big kind of question mark in all of this, as always, is Maverick Vinales. I mean, which version of Maverick are we going to get this year? Because if he doesn't do the business this year... Oliveira will. (laughs) Well, exactly, and that's exactly the point, Jim. So without me prattling on too much. I mean, we've talked about Maverick Vinales endlessly. He's brilliant in testing. He's great on a Friday. On a Saturday, things tend to go wrong. On a Sunday, you just can't really see him. So, I mean, if he can't solve that, then I think he's been around long enough that he might sort of start to resemble a piece of toast. So that then raises the tricky but interesting and good problem from a Prillia's point of view of the RNF squad because I think it was a very canny and entirely in character move for Oliveira to go to the RNF squad where he can just learn the bike for a year, put in some good performances, which he's already done in testing. Okay, it's only testing. And pick up one of the vacant seats that might appear at the end of this season or certainly at the end of next season. And as much as I have concerns about the guy for all sorts of reasons that we don't need to retread now, Raul Fernandez had a very good test in Sepang as well. And whilst he had an absolute horror show on the KTM, which was possibly not all his fault, because we know that that was a tricky bite last year. And we've discussed, or I've mentioned you know, concerns about the way that the Tech 3 management handled that whole situation with him and with Gardner as well. He's going to be in a much happier place. But he has to deliver this year, Jim, Raul Fernandez, because he can't afford to have another year like he had last year, because he'll be gone. Because there's so much talent waiting in the wings in Moto2 and elsewhere, but particularly in Moto2. So the works team is under a massive amount of pressure in terms of the riders this year from the satellite team. And whilst they will start on similar bikes, obviously during the year, the works team will have the pick of the development parts. Not to say that development parts are always better, that's not necessarily always the case, but you know you would expect the RNF squad to drop back a little bit in terms of competitiveness. So I think we'll see Oliveira and Fernandez really going for it in the first third of this season and staking their claim to a spot. And so I can't wait to see how the dynamics of all of that is going to shape up. It's a true move by Aprilia to actually have a satellite team. Yeah. Four bikes gathering data now from four different riders. It's a way for them to push forward more quickly or at least develop in multiple different directions now and get that feedback and potentially change and make the bikes all better around and in the context of moto gp jim which is becoming an increasingly young boys not girls yet but again a young person's sport you know the work squad is quite experienced uh, and is under pressure now from you know the younger generations coming through so again in terms of having a talent feed Aprilia have done exactly the right thing in get, you know getting RNF on board, much to the shame of Yamaha, I must say, who never really treated it seriously. Okay, Fabio did wondrous things, you know, on the Patronus Yamaha in that RNF squad, as it's called now, but that was a sort of an exception, not a rule. So yeah, I think Aprilia are really on the up, as are the European factories in general. But Aprilia, I think, given the size of their operation compared to everybody else's or most other teams on the grid, I mean, they're really punching above their weight. And I think they're really going to create some headlines this year. And I, I, incidentally, without me going on too much about this, I do hope that Maverick and Aleish, particularly Maverick, and we've given him some stick and it's been deserved as far as I'm concerned, but I, 
you know, he's a supremely talented rider and on his day, he's almost unbeatable, but there just aren't enough of those. So I'm hoping that with, what, a season and a half on that bike now, he's going to come of age on the Aprilia this year because I think that would be good to see. Yep. Let's uh, move to the Ducati. They are the best bike. Again, they proved it. Again, seven of the top nine, all Ducatis. Pecco was quick, but he didn't like how the bike felt. There was a disconnect he felt between himself and the throttle, the acceleration of the bike. Uh, they went into a big electronics change on that bike over the night into Sunday, you know, Saturday evening into, into Sunday morning. And when they came out after that major electronics adjustment, Pecco was flying. Now, the bike is every bit as good right now as the 2022 bike was, and there's still more to unlock in this bike, I'm quite sure, which they will do as we go to Puerto Mayo, and we're on a track that's you know a bit different than the long straightaways of Sepang, where you can make time up just by having horsepower. But again, Ducati has found more horsepower, their fastest thing going through the speed traps, and they haven't hurt anything else. They haven't hurt their ability to basically turn or to brake or their handling. So they're definitely on the go again. They're the favorite. Bastianini is quick. He's there with Benyaya, but he's not quite fast enough yet. It remains to be seen what's going to happen here because I think we all know that Bastianini's strength is in tire conservation, the long run, the long end game. I don't know what he's going to do in these sprint races. I don't know how these are going to pan out because you know somewhere along the way, Somebody's just going to go for it here at the beginning and just grab some points or some headlines. <clears throat> Maybe Marquez. I didn't say that out loud, did I? <laughs> you know, he will. As far as it is, yeah. As far as the championship goes, it's going to be the long game on this one, and it's going to take a supreme amount of consistency. I do think Bashini is far more consistent, and will have far more of those crucial three, four, five, six finishes than Banyaya is going to have of one than ones and twos. Just how I see that going. Mm. The other thing, you know, Richard disagreeing? Uh, no, 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 not particularly. I oh, mean, okay. it's, it's okay. hard to call, isn't it? It's really, really yeah, tough because the sprint throws up a, a complete yeah. unknown. We've never had it. It's mm-hmm. a totally different set of rules in terms of how you approach that race and the riders that it will favour and or penalise in terms of what we've been used to seeing and how they've been used to approaching it. So like a lot of people, I think I, I was more of a anti-sprint racing just by the way it was handled. But with a yeah, winter of no racing and a lot of time to think about it, as we were saying before we started the recording, Jim, I'm really looking forward to the sprint races now. I, I mean, I'd certainly nobody will I, I try to tear over losing FP4, and the sprint races are going to be fascinating. Yeah, if you lose FP4, which that's where a lot of guys figured out their race setting and what they wanted to do. Now that's gone. Yeah. So now you've reduced the amount of time that they have to set up, which is potentially going to, at the beginning at the very least, I think potentially shake up the grid and put things in places that we don't exactly think that they're going to be. Now, they will, as always, they will figure this out and they'll figure out how to play the game. And by the time we get back to mainland Europe, I think things will have shaken out and the sprint races may become dry. And then again, they may not. We'd we'd have no clue how this is going to roll. But it is interesting here at the beginning to see what's going to happen because we don't know. And that's the part that we like. There's that unknown factor there's this x factor that we just don't understand you know another part of the x factor is bastion was out in the rain in malaysia and he was quick in the rain which is something that he has not been very good at it in the rain uh i can't say that the the ukadis used to for a long time love the rain and then it sort of went away a little bit miller had some good rides in the rain but not what we would expect uh so for them to now be sort of 
or for at least Pecco to be fast dry and be fast wet is somewhat ominous. I just doubt his consistency over 44 races. Mm. I, I'm going to correct you on something, Jim. It's the best bike on the grid sure. now because the Suzuki's gone. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'll go with that. I would always hold to the fact that at the end of last season, the Suzuki was just about the best bike on the grid. But no, I'm just being pithy. But what was I going to say? Well, the other big unknown, which is kind of flying under the radar a little bit, and nobody's really talked about it too much, but is this control pressure on the front tyre in particular? You know, mm-hmm. we don't know how that is going to play out. We don't even know how it's going to work in terms of working in the real world. I mean, I think this year this comes in, doesn't it? This yes, yes, regulation or monitoring of a tire zone in terms of pressure that if you fall out of it, I'm not quite sure what the repercussions of falling out of the tire pressure zone will be if that's a post race. I mean, I hope we don't get into too much of that sort of shenanigans and yeah. nonsense because that'll be a nightmare. If they do it as fines, the problem then becomes that whoever has enough money is going to run outside the rules to take the fine, right? So ideally, Michelin has a set range that the tire should be at when it is cold and you cannot deviate from that. And yes. when people were starting the race at a lower temperature, waiting for it to warm up to then become optimum, say, eight or nine laps in, they would then come to the front. And you can think about who those people were. I'll let you do your own sleuthing (laughs) on that one. But it's going to be interesting what happens with that. I would assume, knowing that this has been the case, that everybody started out that way with the proper tire pressures for Michelin and that they are abiding by it and figuring out a solution to their setup based on what they have. Yeah. It's yet another variable that feeds into the uncertainty of how all of this is going to shape up this year which from our point of view i mean it's a nightmare for the teams and the riders i'm sure but from our point of view it's going to be great because it might help to or invoke some shaking up of the competitive order again which is from my point of view is only a good thing returning to ducati just very briefly i think they've very consciously not made the same mistake this year that they made last year which was throwing too much new development stuff at the works bikes because if you remember uh, back to qatar last year which is a, seems like a decade ago didn't it in terms of the amount of racing that's happened since then but Remember Bagnard being very, very angry that he was effectively riding a test bike, whereas Bastianini, who went out and won the race in Qatar, did he last year at the beginning of the season, was on the previous year's fully sorted bike. And we can kind of see an element of that in how the Sepang test ended up, given that Luca Marini was quickest. Now, that's not to denigrate Luca Marini as a rider or in terms of his performance at the Sepang test, but he is riding the end of season 2022 bike, which we know was a championship winning bike and fully sorted. Whereas the works guys probably have a few bits of development on there, which may or may not have hampered them a little bit. Plus, because they insist on going testing in Sepang, the weather kept interfering. And with one hour left on the Sunday, it started to rain. So nobody really went out and pushed for a really fast lap. That opportunity was taken away by the weather gods. So the top 10, as we look at it on paper now, might not have looked like that had it stayed dry for that last hour and everybody had gone out and done the whole how big's my trouser bulge compared to yours kind of exercise that people tend to like to do at the end of a test session that isn't too close to a race weekend. So Luca Marini was fast. He was fastest in Valencia as well, Jim. So we talked him up in terms of our top 10s based on his 2022 performances overall. I thought he had a great year. And I mean, certainly he's been the champion of testing albeit it's very limited testing but he's been fastest in both of those events so vr46 go into the new season with their tails quite high i would say but ducati overall are just rampant but then we didn't really expect anything else did we no we did not 
Uh, that's it for Ducati, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So alphabetically, there should be gas gas there, but that is a KTM. Let's be honest. So we're going to yep. go with <laughs> Honda alphabetically. Next, and oh my goodness gracious, uh, they just absolutely horrid and still horrid. And it pains me to see Honda be in this bad of shape, but they have created their own problem. Uh, They had four different frames, four different engines, four different configurations that Marquez was trying and running around with. Uh, They kind of whittled that down to basically a frame that was pretty much exactly what they had at the end of the year in Valencia which means they've gone nowhere. Things, I think, had gotten so bad and so far out of hand that in the heat of the day, Marquez went out without any arrow on the bike whatsoever to get some baseline to figure out where they were. Because they were either, you know, Marquez kind of shrugged it off and was like, oh, you guys saw that? Well, we just did that for Ken. Oh, the guy they brought from his... Ken Kawachi. Ken, yeah. Ken Kawachi, thank you. And they said they needed it just so he could figure out a baseline for the bike and where it was and what's helping and what's not. I'm like, oh, good grief, people. No, 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 no. You're just so far in the weeds. You have no idea what you're doing and where you're going. And I mean, it's it's just crazy that they're now they've taken all the data. They've taken everything that Marquez has said and hopefully mirror. And they're hopefully going to do something different with it when they get to Porta Mile. I mean, if anybody's got time in three weeks, to do new frames and everything else, it's Honda. They have that power. Now, whether they get it right or not, highly unlikely that they're going to, in my opinion. I don't see it happening. The interesting part of all of this is where Paul Sparger weighs in, which I think comments that he made, uh, and these were from the race. So if you want to go check them out yourself, you can. But he's like saying that the whole problem with Honda is the fact that they've still catered to Marquez and how he rides, which is all the way on the brakes, full blast, Every bit of it right away at the beginning, load the front and then the back end off the ground floating around in midair. And that is a very aggressive braking technique. And Paul says that the way to do it is actually a more progressive braking procedure where you keep the bike sort of level and keep it in a neutral state, keep the rear on the ground and use the rear brake to actually ease yourself into the corner. And since, spoiler alert, KTM has poached a lot of Ducati engineers the ones that are working with Paul say, yeah, that's the way you do it. That's how Bastianini is going fast. That's how Pekka is going fast. And so they're kind of, you know, Paul's trying to mimic that. And he's always been stating that he could never ride the Honda because he could never use the rear brake. You know, Mir claims that he's riding the bike. He rides it a more natural way for him than he did when he was on the Suzuki. I'll take him at his word. I'm not going to say that he isn't riding that way, but if that style of bike fits him, great. But I don't think that's the style of bike you need to go and win races on. I'm beginning to wonder if the problem here isn't so much Honda as it is they're listening to what Mark says as opposed to what Mir says. And if they do that, and they probably will, it's going to be a long season for Juan Mir because he's going to just be frustrated beyond belief because he's not ever going to find solution um to that so that is where i see honda rich your thoughts on honda well i don't know where to start jim to be honest with you now <laughs> you know we're not engineers we're not team members you know i'm sure as hell not an aerodynamicist but for them to strip the bike naked of aero and to claim that that was somehow a useful endeavor i, I mean i don't understand what that was all about other than perhaps giving us a glimpse of what a proper race bike should look like shot of all of these appalling appendages that have sprouted 
I don't know what to say about Honda, to be honest with you. I think you know there were times over the three days of the Sepang test when Rins looked as if he was starting to get to grips with the bike. It's no secret that I'm a big fan of Alex Rins. I do wonder if he's the guy that's likely to get the best out of the bike this year. We'll see. But it's just a horror show top to bottom. And they currently look like a team that almost needs to just write off this year again and try and find a way out of the hole that they're in. For me, Jim, to pick up on what you were saying, and I'm interested in what you think in response to this, Marquez was on that run of championships. And I'm not saying that made Honda complacent, because I'm sure it didn't. But when you're winning all the time, you just get used to winning. And he took the pre-aero bike to the absolute limit of a riding style, which was that bizarre kind of front end, rear foot in the air, crossed up, making shapes, crazy saves and stuff. But since he was doing that, he went out for, what, a season and a half with this arm injury. And in that gap, let's say coincidentally, aero has exploded. And he hasn't been there to help Honda try and develop their way through it. And from what I can tell, they haven't really developed the bike around aero particularly. They, I don't think they understand how to bring aero into the picture. So for me, it's not about them bringing two new chassis to Portimao. I mean, if they can't get the aero right, then the chassis is almost incidental because the aero has such an effect on everything else that developing a chassis when your aero is not right is a pointless endeavour in the first place. So they are so lost and at sea at this point in time. I just don't know what they're going to do. And again, just to reference The Race, which is a great website, a very good podcast. Simon Patterson is obviously a very sort of prevalent part of that and never holds back with his opinions. And as a retort to what, just going back a little bit to what we were talking about in terms of the feedback on Maddie, you asked her the question, Jim, what will Mark Marquez do? And she said, no, he'll stay put, he'll win on that bike, or he'll help develop the bike from a legacy point of view for the next generation. Well, on the podcast that the race did, which I listened to yesterday, Simon Patterson has completely changed his opinion now. And he is now saying that he actually thinks Mark will jump at the earliest opportunity because he doesn't, like us, he doesn't see a path, certainly nothing in the short term or even medium term for Honda that will keep Marquez in place. And if Marquez wants another championship, I don't think he's going to get it on the Honda. He will have to switch to another team. So even Simon Patterson, unlike what his wife was saying, so uh, as a retort to the people that think she's just a, a voice piece for her husband, which is absolutely you know, a stupid thing to say and isn't true. But he is now saying, in his opinion, Mark is going to have to jump if he wants to win a lot of races and even a championship. So that's how bad it is at Honda. It's a sad sight to see, really, because you've lost Suzuki. Honda are all over the place. And Yamaha, well, we'll come to them in a minute, but they don't look in great shape either. So it's not looking great in the land of the rising sun at the moment in a championship that they have utterly dominated for the last, what, 40 years? Easily. More, probably. Yeah, so it's nice in one way to see a shake-up in the competitive order and, you know, the fact that the European factories are much more prevalent now, but they're doing that through hard work. And as much as I hate aero, it's here, and until it gets banned, this is what we've got, and the Europeans are just doing a much, much, much better job. Simple as that. Yeah, the Honda has missed the revolution of aero. That is by far what is wrong. I, yeah. I really can't even figure out how to actually make a decent comparison. I mean, it's not the same, but let's go back to Formula One because we tend to make comparisons to them all the time. You go back to the 2009 season, right? They had changed the way the cars were. They were trying to take away the air under the car 
And lo and behold, they left a loophole in the rules that said you could have essentially a double diffuser, right? So three, four teams had that diffuser ran off. I mean, Braun at the time had figured it out. <clears throat> Excuse me. They ran off and won a world title, right? So, you know, everybody else is left scratching their head and trying to figure it out. And I think that's where Honda is. They're left scratching their head, trying to figure out what they're going to do and how this is going to work. This is kind of back to that. You got to listen to mirror thing. He's ridden a bike that had probably better arrow than what the Honda has or uses its arrow in a way that's better than the Honda. So he kind of knows what that's supposed to feel like. Same thing with friends, right? They Because they both came from Suzuki. The interesting thing is, is I'm not so sure that Honda can write their ship until they have a rider who will who is going to come from a, a Ducati, maybe a KTM, and says, this is how it's done, and this is what you need to do to fix it. Until then, I think it's going to be, it's just not going to happen. I uh, just don't see it. Jim, I think you know a rider is never going to solve this for Honda at the point that they're it at. It may not. They need to bring in, like, super specialist they need like an adrian newey to arrive yeah because i think I, you might be right on that too i think what's happening i say i'm not an aerodynamicist <laughs> i'm about <laughs> as far from being an aerodynamicist as you can possibly be but you know sometimes you look at things and you know if they're right or wrong just by the look of them and yeah. it, it just strikes me that a honda is still in that frame of mind that thinks oh well if we sort of rivet a couple of wing flaps on the front it will help with a bit of front end downforce and a bit of front end tire feel whereas your Ducatis and your Aprilias, they're looking at kind of computational fluid dynamics in terms of outwash and how that will affect a competitor around them mm-hmm. in terms of a, a negative impact on people around them to stop them, you know, to create dirty air. I mean, I hate this. This is the problem with Formula One. It's been a massive problem for Formula One for years. And we're heading again down this rabbit hole where, you know, you can conjure all sorts of invisible nastiness with airflow. And I bet you... I just bet you that, you know, your Aprilis and stuff, they don't give a flying what's it about front downforce now because they've got that figured out a couple of years ago. They're now looking at how they disrupt the airflow for people that are around them to stop them being able to outbreak in a braking zone. Honda, I don't think they're anywhere in that universe Yeah, in terms of their aerodynamic kind of thinking. They need to bring this talent in and the rider is never going to solve that for them. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more along the line, if you had a rider that knew what it was supposed to feel like, you could maybe guide them in a direction. Mm. Provided that you have someone of a newy ilk, if you will. Yeah, okay. To do it, right? You need all I of guess it. I guess I just didn't. Yeah, you. it's a yeah. package. It's everything. I think early on, it was bolt some wings on the front and let's keep the front end down. Now I think where the level that Ducati and Aprilia and KTM is almost there, are playing at is they're fundamentally designing and building a chassis that requires this aerodynamics to make it all work as one seamless element with all of the cool lowering right height device slash whole shot device slash all the other gizmos that Ducati has figured out. And the problem is when you got somebody who figured it out first, you can copy it, but you're never going to be basically as good as the original. It takes a lot to beat the original or make it better. Think of your smartphone, right? Apple had the first original smartphone. They dominated the market. And look how long it took Samsung or any Android version of phone to get to where they were. Have they surpassed them? That's neither here nor there. The idea is there was this gap, right? There was nothing comparable to it. And it took people a long time to get there and then surpass it. And part of it was 
is that if you stand still, right? Ducati isn't standing still. They're still the best and they're still looking for more out of it. And you can really tell on the 23 bike, it's all a seamlessly integrated package against rider. I mean, they're starting to look at when the bike's leaned over, what's that air doing as it rushes underneath between the road and when it's bent over at 60 degrees. And, you know, even Elaine said that some of the things that they put on the lower part of the fairing really help that bike turn into fast uh, flicks of Assen. Yeah. You can argue it's getting out of control and you're going into this world of black hole that nobody's going to want. And you could see some follow the leader type racing, which I don't think any of us want to see, but it's it's the where we are. Well, that's up to the regulators to define yeah. which way they want the sport to go. But my question for you, Jim, I think I know, well, I've got an idea as to the answer, and I'm very happy to be proven wrong on this. You okay. know, an acid test on this point with regard to Honda. What was the last thing that Honda brought to a prototype MotoGP motorcycle that everybody mm-hmm. else copied? Seamless shift gearbox. Exactly. And how long ago was that? Stoner was riding it to the World Championships, so that's 2011. Okay. It's 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. The point is, that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. When have we ever seen an aerodynamic thing appear on a Honda that everybody else thought, shit, we better quickly get in the wind tunnel and develop that? It's never happened. And this championship, it's still a tyre championship, because tyres are fundamental, but it is rapidly mm-hmm. becoming an aero championship, as much as it pains me to say it. And in that regard... Mark Marquez can be the best rider in the world for the next 10 years. He will not win on a Honda. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, it's the truth. That's where they are, Jim. But if, yeah. if people have a different opinion, please, please let us know. Let us know. Motopod at motopodcast.com. <laughs> we'll talk about it on the next show because we've got a few weeks to fill in before MotoGP gets going. And this is obviously yeah. a, a big topic. It so, is. Next time. Oh, let's go to KTM. Let's go back to the Europeans. The last of the European bikes, right? Kind of one of the things that I picked out, the new KTM. This is from Matt Oxley. Uh, saw it on Twitter. The bike has a cable clutch and not the hydraulic clutch that KTMs have always ran. Now, mm. hear me out here. <laughs> that is huge. That is fundamental. Okay. When you have a cable clutch and you are using a couple fingers to control it, the feel that you get from that is incredible. And when you go to hydraulic, it's missing. That feel is different. The feel, because like I used to ride Honda dirt bikes and I got myself a KTM dirt bike and it has a hydraulic clutch. And Believe it or not, the first couple of times I took off with it, I stalled it or revved it to the moon and slipped the clutch really hard because the feel that I'm looking for in my hand and my fingers isn't there. I'm not connected in, I'm not connected directly to the clutch. I'm connected to it through something else, which is a viscous fluid. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it took a little bit to realize that it was more from what I felt from the seat of my pants for getting it to go than it was through my hand that I could get it to go so if you put that cable clutch on the ktms now maybe that solves some of the issues that they have at the starts where they're not exactly at the front where they can't really get a good start every now and then vendor gets it right and gets a cracking start but i think you're going to see consistently the ktms be a little closer to the front they also put a lot of effort into uh look like multiple different parts pieces bits bobs they threw everything i think at the bikes but kitchen sinks which was fantastic for them because that's a lot of data that they could churn their way through a lot of different directional pieces. Hey, let's go down, sit down, think about what this whole picture is and which way are we going to go and what things are we going to concentrate on when we get to Puerto Mayo. They also looked like they were working pretty hard on their whole shot device and practicing starts as well, because uh, I do think that the bikes looked like they were, qu- there were some comparison shots I saw on Twitter of how low 
the KTM would get down almost as low as the Ducati. So they've sort of figured out how to get lower at center of gravity. You can see Bender do a lot of starts where the front wheel, if it was an inch off the ground, that was a lot. So hopefully they're trying to work on that. Plus it seemed as though they're working towards a little bit better that qualifying. I think they realize the sprint race is important. It's a good place to gain points and stay in it. And they seem to have been working as well with a lot of the parts to try to qualify better and to try to work on the way things will feel and work in those start situations and in qualifying as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where all this is going to shake out with them because it's a lot of different parts and pieces. So they got a lot of thinking to do, but I got to think that they're, you know, their third best bike right now. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, you look at this with a much more analytical kind of engineering perspective than I do, because I'm not an engineer <laughs> and you are. So hopefully that's it's sort of a good balance in the way that we kind of approach our view of things. I mean, my view of KTM was that I was a bit underwhelmed compared to what mm. I expected. Because I think we all thought they were going to turn up with some kind of like crazy aero package and they were just going to be like a second quicker than everybody else. No, okay, that was never actually going to happen. But that was kind of the way things felt to be building up. So for me, yeah, they kind of slightly disappointed. Although again, you know, it's not like a broken record, but testing, you always have to take it with a massive pinch of salt. I'm kind of intrigued by the whole clutch cable thing. I mean, is that something, Jim, that they could... Because the KTM is rather famously quite an aggressive bike in its power delivery. I think that's kind of been an ongoing theme since they came into the MotoGP class. So and we know mm-hmm. these guys use the clutch quite a lot to manage rear wheel spin. So is that something you could see in terms of a connection and a controllability point of view, not just from the start? I mean, we know that the KTM is a great Sunday bike. Its problem has tended to be on a Saturday, but nevertheless, is that something that would benefit them in terms of managing tires and race performance as well? I don't think so. I mean, maybe a little bit because you have that feel of where things are. I don't think it's all that much. If we didn't have seamless shift gearboxes and things of that nature, I would say yes. I don't think these guys are slipping the clutch coming out of a corner. I think it's on the rear brake, holding it down. Okay. That kind of style of riding. If Bender is slipping the clutch on it, then he's going to have a whole lot more feeling. There's not going to be the vague gap. If you have a cable clutch, it's a lack of a better way to describe it to everybody. I think it's a one-to-one ratio. If I move my fingers one millimeter, I get an exact amount of slip from that. Whereas if I'm in this world of hydraulics, I got a vague area there where if I'm moving a millimeter, I may at the beginning of the race be moving a millimeter because the fluid's not hot, but now the fluid's hot. So it then changes and becomes different. So there's like you have fade in the suspensions because of the oils and stuff. And that's why there's bladders and reserves and other things to keep the fluids and those things cool. The same thing theoretically happens with a clutch, but you still have a lot of heat and there's got to be a slave cylinder there. And it's probably more complicated to change engines and work on and set than it is if it's cable. I mean, it could be one of those things too, where the, the idea like in your car, if you have a cable clutch in your car, if you ever driving a standard is that you never have to adjust the clutch because the hydraulics are taking that up. So in theory, the clutch should be perfect all the way through. So there could be a point, and this maybe is maybe what you were asking, Rich, is that if you're racing the bike and the clutch is starting to fade, it's going to be easier for Bender to 
maybe twist an adjuster to put some clutch into the bike to avoid the fade that maybe they were getting with the hydraulics. And maybe that isn't exactly going to correct the tire issue or the spin that they get back there, but it's more of a direct connection for how he feels with the throttle because the clutch is now changing how that power comes through and is administered to the tire. Mm. And it may be that they're just going to get that better feel of what traction they have available to them because they can adjust the clutch a little bit easier to make that up and get what they want out of it. Yeah. So, okay. Maybe I'm interested somewhere here. It's very interesting to me from an engineering standpoint, why they're playing with this and what they're looking for out of it. And to me, it's all about feel. It's all about getting the clutch to do what you want it to do. And maybe it's also about being able to easily adjust the clutch, you know, cause you see the guys, they've got a, cable that comes across from the right side of the bike that they can turn the brake to adjust the brake stop for the front brakes. And you can kind of do the same thing on there too. You could have a knob to turn to adjust the clutch too. So maybe I, 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 I'm fascinated to whether it's going to stay or if they change back at some point that, that, that whole thing is, is very interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, KTM a little bit like Ducati have been a bit guilty. I think from what I've read and heard over the last couple of seasons, not so much last year, but certainly the year before, just throwing far too much development at the bike and just getting a bit lost with new parts and stuff. Because they're a smaller factory, they can kind of cycle through new developments quite quickly. But sometimes you need a bit of time and consistency to sort of weigh up what's right and what's wrong. So I'm kind of interested that they've taken a sort of bit of a different view. They also had a quite a radically different, not particularly pleasant to look at, exhaust system on the bike as well. So they are playing around with stuff. Obviously, they've got three new riders across yeah, the two is, teams, which is tricky because they needed to. They need they needed to. That, they needed they, the change. Yeah, they, they absolutely had to did. get a change. They did. Yeah, they needed different people on those bikes. People will be sort of saying, "Well, hang on a minute, Paul Espargo rode the KTM for years, but yes. again, two years in MotoGP is a lifetime mm-hmm. in terms of bike development." But you 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 had two rookies that were on the Tech Three team. Yeah, who had no MotoGP experience at all. That isn't going to help you push that bike forward, mm. right? Because what does the rookie know? The rookie is trying to figure out how to hang on to the thing. Well, one of the rookies much. didn't even want to be there, Jim, and made it perfectly plain all year long. Yes, true. That was just a wasted seat. Yeah, that it, w- it was a wasted year for one of the four KTM's that are there, right? Yeah, and they kind of had to force their. You know, I think the engineers kind of forced pit Byra's hands if you will hey look we're not getting the data back that we need to desperately need to change this bike because you know ducati can afford to have some rookies on there right because they've got eight bikes on the grid so if you had four with riders with three four years experience in MotoGP, and you got ones that are one two years of experience you got a farm system that just keeps rotating people through and you just you're never losing that development cycle and i think KTM lost the development cycle. And I do think with everything they've done, they understand, I think, where they are, what they're trying to get to, because the results so far have been more promising than previous years' testing. They're a, sort of a, a strange conundrum, I think, KTM, because what have they been in the championship now? This will be probably, the, I'm going to guess, their seventh or eighth season, perhaps? Something like that. Yeah, you're, you're close. Not a long, long time. And I'm just trying to think, the year that Oliveira was in the Tech 3 squad on that kind of, was it a Pepsi or Coca-Cola kind of liveried bike? Nice sort of blue and silver and orange bike. And he won, I'm pretty sure Oliveira won the first MotoGP race for 
KTM brand, albeit on a Tech 3. Yeah. At Red Bull Ring. Oh, it was the Red Bull Cola bike. That's what it was. That's the one. Yeah. Okay. And if you remember, I think Marquez and somebody else were Dyson up front, possibly, and might have been, was it Miller involved, I think? I can't quite remember. But anyway, at the last turn, Oliveira just nabbed them and took the first win. And at that point, KTM were sort of massively in the ascendancy and they won a couple more races. You know, they had a good sort of raw, gritty sort of first album and then made the massive mistake of doing a sort of a prog rock second album. You know, (laughs) they just went completely off the charts, off the scale, got completely lost in their own kind of, well, not hype, that's the wrong word. But for the last two to three seasons, they've kind of been sort of lost with too much development parts and just not quite figuring it out. So I hope... And I really do hope, because I like KTM as a brand. I hope they kind of get it to sort of settle down and figure it out a bit this year. You know, they got Paul Despargro back. He, I think he was the fastest. I'm, I'm not going to talk about Tech 3 or Gas Gas, Jim. I'm just going to say the fastest KTM, because at this point, they're all on the same yeah. equipment. It's the same bike. I think he was the fastest of them all. I, I'm not utterly convinced that this is going to work out brilliantly for Jack Miller. I mean, I hope, again, I hope I'm wrong because I don't wish any of these people bad, but somebody has to win and somebody has to be last. So that's just, you know, that's the nature of the meritocracy, unfortunately. But I kind of not quite sure Miller's going to have quite as good a time on the KHM as we might hope that he will. I'm a bit ambivalent yeah. about how Augusto Fernandez is going to go on the bar. I think Paul Espargo might actually have a little bit of a renaissance, and I think most people would probably be quite pleased to see that. Yeah. But clearly, you know, the whole KTM thing at this point in time is built around brad binder and so they need to get the bike to work for him so my takeaway from sapang obviously we've got the two i think it's two or possibly three but i think it's a two-day test at portimao in the week running up to the first race there so the teams will have had a bit of time to do some more work but sapang and portimao couldn't be more different in terms of the environment could they in the the track so how one will translate to the other is obviously a little bit hard to read but yeah uh underwhelming on the face of it, but possibly a bit more going on perhaps than we're aware of that might actually be standing them in good stead. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, I think we kind of whipped down, beat down the KTM gas-gas combination. So that leaves us with yeah. last brand standing, Yamaha. Oh, wow. It looked it looked promising to start. They appear to have found whatever was missing from the Mazano motor that they tested at Valencia that didn't have any power in it whatsoever. That seems to have come back, and all things appear to be going quite swimmingly. Things, they looked fast. I think Quattraro was riding well. Morbidelli looked greatly improved. You know, he was way more comfortable on that bike. And then they decided that they needed to do an attack time. And they went out there, and then Quattraro was doing his thing, riding to the limit, maybe just a skosh beyond. And what we always say, stopwatch never lies. And they show back up a second slower. <laughs> Than anyone else. Quattro was going like, what happened? What happened when we went to attack time here, guys? They don't know. They honestly have no idea. And they had no solution for it from what I can figure out. So that means Quattro cannot start any worse than ninth on a MotoGP grid and hope to be near the podium. You must be on the first three rows, period. And quite honestly, you can make a statement that Ducati could conceivably lock out the first three rows. Easily. As good as they are, as scary as that sounds. But I mean, everything's going to be to play for here, right? I mean, Mm. but it is interesting where that all went. I mean, other than that, Yamaha had nothing. I mean, I get it. They And and then 
you always know his name. The guy, who head guy at Yamaha, Lynn Jarvis. Lynn Jarvis, yeah. Yes, yeah, because we're not on a Christmas card list with each other. Anyway, <laughs> Lynn Jarvis is, goes to the media and just kind of bemoans the fact that, oh, hey, you know, we don't have four bikes. And, well, we really need four bikes. And we don't have a satellite team. And, well, we really want Rossi to come over here and be a satellite team for us. And he, he's just looking at it like going... Dude, nobody's going to want the bike. That's their problem, yeah. Seriously, if you are Valentino Rossi, you have an Italian bike that is the best bike. I think Mooney got 20, gets 2022s? 20, mm-hmm. Or are they getting, yeah, they get 2022s. 20, yeah, 2022. Uh, I mean, those bikes are amazing. And you're going to, and you, as Valentino Rossi, go, well, I used to ride for Yamaha. Okay, guys, bring that over. I mean, if Yamaha wants a satellite team, they're going to have to pony some cash to get somebody to take it. I mean, much like how LCR uh, Honda is propped up by Honda and the Nakagami part of that, right? There's got to be something that Yamaha is going to have to do to be able to get Rossi to switch. Now, if you want a conspiracy theory, you get Rossi to come back because you promise him the Yamaha guy was right. Rosla, the. Well, I can never get this name right. <laughs> yeah. Raslan Rosgali. Yeah. So I cannot think of the name. You can't, I cannot say that name. I'll never be able to. <laughs> So if you say, yeah, Top Rack is going to go to your team, right? I mean, then Rossi may think about it, right? But he's not changing. He's not going to. And so, I mean, for you to sit there and bemoan the fact that you have this, that was your problem already. You basically, for lack of anything else, pushed RNF out the door, you know, and just said, sorry, guys, we're not going to have a bike. And you left and you left them going with a big SOS like, hey, we're open for business. And who walked in but Aprilia? On an upswing, by the way, right? Mm. I don't know what Yamaha is going to do. I don't know if I'm wondering if they are in the same same or similar situation to Honda in that the arrow is bolted on bits and bobs that they think looks cool, but they're not the integrated package that's required to actually go fast. And they are it that part of it is overshadowed by the fact that Quattraro is brilliant on a motorcycle. I want to sort of pick up on a kind of a, a thread of thought that Maddie Patterson was kind of tapping into, Jim, which I think is, I don't want to get myself into trouble here, but it's just my opinion. It's not a fact. It's an opinion, okay? And, I, and I'm happy to be proven wrong on this or for people to disagree with me. But I just kind of feel a little bit that the Japanese factories, that they're kind of, their mentality is like still back in the 1980s almost, you know, like the business model is just wrong. It, you know, Yamaha, and I'm talking specifically Yamaha, not Honda so much. I think Yamaha have been unbelievably guilty of treating satellite teams as just custom, you know, revenue. You know, you lease them a bike and it creates some relapse. revenue for you. It's not a development path. It's not a development path in terms of data. It's not a development path in terms of, you know, they don't have a, an equivalent well, they don't have anybody now, but they haven't had a kind of an equivalent to say a Johan Zarka who just quietly does his job, tests all the new bits reasonably quietly. People give him a bit of stick because he doesn't win, but he's the sort of the test mule in a race weekend, Johan Zarka for Ducati. He was testing a lot. He, he's been doing it for the, parts... ever since he's been in Pramac, Jim. That yeah. has been that's almost his, that's, that's his, his role. That's his job. That his, is his role is to try the new stuff. You know, they bring Michaeli Pirro along occasionally for wildcards, but Zarka's doing it every weekend mm-hmm. and kind of gets a bit of grief for it, really, which he shouldn't really get because he's doing a great job for the factory. You know, Yamaha have never, ever done that. I mean, if you look at Tech 3, they're always kind of like on, 
I think on second best. They were customers. They were just paying for the privilege to run Yamaha, which at the time was the best bike. But how many races did Tech 3 win? None. None. It wasn't until they got a KTM, which exactly. was a full factory bike, that they were able to win. That was the paradigm shift in terms of how KTM approached it. It was like, no, you are going to have a bang up to date bike. You're part of the program. You know, you are going to make us better. And Yamaha just don't have that. And so, you know, the the birds are really coming home to roost now, I think. They live for a long time off the brilliance, of, you know, the brilliance of Rossi. Mm-hmm. And in that sort of early-ish MotoGP era, yes, they did do a better job, you know, with the cross-plane crank and stuff like that, plus Rossi and his team and stuff. But you can't live off that forever. You know, there they had Lorenzo and Fabio, but, but Fabio is kind of doing a Mark Marquez. He's just, he's brilliant, but he's only so brilliant and you can't ultimately make up the rest when you have got this what uh tidal wave of innovation coming from the other teams who are now exclusively european for whatever reason yamaha are just in deep deep shit as well you know and you know okay they've solved the speed problem but it's not just about top speed it's about getting off the turn it's it's about so many different things aero if they get on the wrong side of that mandated tire pressure issue their problems multiplied by several factors again because we know how bad that yamaha is when it gets stuck in traffic and heat starts to put that front tire pressure up so that might be an exponentially bad problem (laughs) for them and so i mean i don't know really i mean they're in a lot of trouble at the minute i think I yeah. wish they weren't because we were, were desperate that they weren't going to be in this position. But I mean, assuming my timing chart is right in terms of the aggregate top speeds over the three days, Quattararo 19th, Morbidelli 20th. That's terrible. I mean, that is shockingly bad compared to what yeah. they were expecting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it might all turn around in Portimao. I mean, we don't know. We just don't know. But the signs are not particularly good at the moment. So this looks at the moment like a Ducati, Aprilia cup championship yeah. possibly with ktm putting one in there and taking him knocking on the door yeah. maybe marquez you know or quattro on their day taking advantage of something and sprint races obviously is an unknown yep. but yeah it, it looks tough going for the japanese contingent at the moment yeah it is it's bad all the way around for the japanese i mean i don't know what they're going to do just you know the question becomes how much sway does honda have because i mean honda had enough sway that honda basically swayed four strokes that was kind of their doing. Yeah. Right? So the question then begs, did they get enough sway to say, look, we're done here unless you get rid of Arrow, you know, whatever that may be, right? Some concession of some kind, right? And then you've got to think that in that respect, the powers that be at MotoGP would like to tell you no, because they beat them down when they said, hey, we want a standard electronic interface. And they got it. So, you know, I think the key point, Jim, is we've gone from a kind of a tire and engineering formula to tire and engineering and aero formula. Yes. And the Europeans have got those three bits, let's say, figured out, not completely, because nobody ever does completely have it figured out. But I just think that the Japanese factors, for one reason or another, have only got two parts of that triangle kind of filled in, yep. you know, and that is going to hold them back massively because you can't make up that gap just purely from engineering or from a rider. Yep. If the conditions are right on a certain day, whatever, the rider will potentially make up that gap. But that's not how you win championship. Yeah. That's how you win the occasional race. And that ain't going to be and good that, enough yeah. for Fabio Quattro, and it certainly ain't going to be good enough for Mark Marquez. 
So that's the other problem that they've got. That's the other big threat is what talent do they attract into their ranks whilst they're in this position? Because nobody's going to want to go there. No. I mean, they attracted Mir and Renz, right? But that's out of desperation on those two. I was going to say, where else were they going to go? Yeah, yeah. Do you think Renz or Mir wouldn't be chomping at the bit to be on a Ducati or an Aprilia? Yeah. Well, I think it was a fundamental, desperately stupid mistake for Rins not to end up in the RNF squad. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It might be that the opportunity wasn't there anymore. I mean, you don't know how early sort of letters of intent are signed and stuff like this, but mm. fair play to Oliveira. I always say he's like the Alan Prost of the MotoGP <laughs> paddock. He knows exactly what he's up to. He knows that he can go and have a quiet year on the RNF bike, probably might even win a race or two for all we know. I, I mean, I was almost think he's a dark horse with a championship and yes i know people say he's outside oh, yeah satellite yeah. riders never win championships and historically yeah that is true although fabio nearly did on the patronus yamaha nearly. a few years back but i think oliver is going to open some eyes this year and he's definitely going to put himself in absolutely prime position to get on the work squad and that was obviously his thinking when he took that ride and i think it was a mistake for rins not to do the same thing or as you say jump on one of the satellite ducatis if he could have done because he was yep. talking to Grassini, if you remember, when it, you know it was confirmed that Bastianini was going up to the work squad. Rins was seen walking into the mm-hmm. into the team garage at a couple of the races, but obviously the deal didn't get done. So yeah, he might find life hard on the Honda, unfortunately. Yeah, I think the Grassini part of that was a done deal because I think Grassini is becoming more and more like LCR. Ducati's funding that team. And they're putting people on those two bikes that they want to groom or see or test out in a position to go farther up to the to, to the to the factory team. So I mean, I do like the new color scheme on the on the Grassini bikes. I mean, the 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 concretey gray and red was nice, but they've got a red, white, and black that I think is really crisp and really sharp. So that's my vote for best looking bike so far of the year. I'm not sure how far Fabio Antonio's ultimately going to go in MotoGP, although I think he's going to have a markedly better year this year than last when he was a rookie. But I think Alex Marquez is going to turn a few heads this year. I and think that he has all too. sorts of implications for his brother. Oh, yes, it does. But we'll talk about that another time because we've been going thing. on for quite a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Since we're talking, about, we're talking about his brother, let's fill this in as the way to get out of the MotoGP. Yeah. There is the new Amazon Prime series. If you have Amazon Prime, you have access to it, depending on what country you are in, because it's definitely not rolled out to everybody's country. I have it here in the U.S. Do you have it? You have it in the U.K., Rich. We have it in not the U.K. Sure. Yeah. Maybe they've got this fixed, but there is the six-part series, uh, Mark Marquez, all in. It is good. I have seen the first episode. They're about 32 to 40 minutes long, mm-hmm. so they're not too hard to digest. Uh, it is subtitled, so you have to deal with being able to try to read everything as it goes by on the screen very fast, and I struggle with that. But it is a very good take on uh, what happened and his crash, his surgeries, his surgeries, his surgeries, and then his uh, <laughs> return to the paddock, as it were. It's a good insight to seeing into what makes sort of him tick. And it's a neat take on how they did it as far as some of the comments that Mark makes are him watching the series back after they edit it and put it all back together again. I do not want to take away from the series at all, but I will mention this one little nugget. I kind of wondered what it was like for Mark to have dilopia, uh, his vision problem, and he explains it, but then they created a graphic that made it look like you were having dilopia 
And Mark was impressed by, he says, you made this? This is exactly how it looked. This is how it felt. So that part right there is incredibly interesting to understand what he had gone through or is potentially could go through again if he knocks his head hard enough again uh, trying to go up front. So be sure to check that out on uh, Amazon Prime if you have access to it. It's uh, Mark Marquez all in. Search for Mark Marquez and it will show up in uh, Amazon Prime. They've managed to do what they managed to do unbelievably with MotoGP Unlimited in terms of not... Screw it up. Well, <laughs> not, it's not available to everybody, depending which territory you're in. And, you know, there are some issues around, I think, the subtitling and stuff. I mean, personally, I prefer to listen to them talking in their own language with mm. subtitles rather than that hideous overdub kind of... Yes. I mean, that, that I was agree. just that, that mm. was just insulting to everybody involved. Personally, I think it's probably better that it's done in... Would have been better done in English predominantly because that's... Yeah, the and Mark's of, English is really good. It is really good, uh, you know, because that's the language that they're expected to talk in during a race weekend. So why make it different? But yeah. anyway, put, putting that to one side, the subtitles for me, not a problem. The one little caveat I just want to mention in terms of people uh, consuming this series is that Mark Marquez and Alex Marquez are the executive producers on the series. Oh, really? Didn't catch that yet. Yeah. If you look at the very beginning, the very opening credit says um, a Fast Brothers production. Mm. If you go away and look at who Fast Brothers productions are, it's the Marquez brothers and they have executive editorial oversight. Mm -hmm. So, and although I haven't seen beyond the first episode like you, Jim, there is a later episode which kind of gets into the whole Marquez Rossi aspects of it. And it's from what I've read, it sounds a little bit like the Santa documentary where Pross mm -hmm. was just kind of the made villain. to look like a you know the worst serial killer in history in that thing. And <laughs> and, and whilst oh, well. Rossi is not an angel. No, uh, but uh, he isn't that. <laughs> But I think he comes out looking pretty bad. And uh, so I think you have to start kind of just go in with your eyes open as to the editorial oversight and the, the, some of the agendas that might be getting fleshed out after mm -hmm. a few years of relative silence, particularly around the whole Sepang thing yeah. back a few years ago. So people just should be aware of that. But I have to say, from what I've seen, it's very insightful. It's nice to see a side of Mark that you don't get to see at the race weekends. He's much more open, much more sort of, I hate to use the term, but much more sort of vulnerable, mm. much more emotional. So, because he is quite robotic. I mean, he is sort of the, I think you've likened him to Michael Schumacher yeah. in the last episode, didn't you? And I think that's a very kind of correct kind of observation about the way he goes about it. He's very corporate, says what he has to say, doesn't rock the boat too much, although he did at the end of the Valencia test, but that was kind of quite out of character for him. So we do get to see... Schumacher did that too, though, in his way. A bit, Yeah. But he was hard to read, Schumacher. Yeah. I mean, because you hear he this, was. you hear about Michael Schumacher, the guy that was at the racetrack, and then you heard about the guy that would be out having dinner or buying dinner for his entire team. A completely different sort of characters, and you hear about this a lot in all sorts of different professions. But I think Mark Marquez is probably very much like that. You know, there's game face, and then there's personal time. So you get to see a bit of the personal side, which I think is great. So yeah, I'd recommend if people have access to it, I'd recommend that they give it a give it a try because it is. Although I need to go back and watch MotoGP Unlimited again, because it wasn't, I think, as bad as people made out. I think it was more the fuss around or the disaster around how it was launched. It, I think people were just comparing it to Drive to Survive, which for me is not that brilliant anyway, because it's very sensationist in the way that it's put together. But and MotoGP Unlimited kind of it was a bit surface level. It didn't really get 
You didn't get an awful it didn't lot go of deep enough. It didn't go deep enough. And this Mark Marquez thing is deeper where you want to be. Definitely yeah. goes deeper, Jim. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. Alrighty, folks. I'm going to sign off from here because Rich has an interview that's going to be on the backside of this. Rich, you want to just tell us who it's going to be? Yeah, just very briefly, because we'll do a Zoom Zoom and we'll be straight into it. So I had the pleasure to catch up with a young lad called Asher Durham. Uh, again, that might not be a name that's massively familiar to all of the listeners around the world, but he's a guy that runs in uh, Superstock 600 on the BSB race calendar, if you like. He's been in that class. I think he's going into his fourth or fifth season now. Uh, was very good in the 125 and then the kind of the Moto3 uh, equivalent for several years. Yeah, so uh, an absolutely fascinating chat with Asher. A guy that's, you know, really had to struggle his way through, like a lot of young riders in the lower formulas do all around the world in, you know, the various national championships. It doesn't come easy. So we get into a lot of discussion around how hard it is, what he's had to do and sacrifice, what his day-to-day routine is like. I mean, he's not out riding around a test track every day. He's got a day job, like a lot of these guys have to have, you know, because they have to live. He's of mixed ethnicity. So that's an interesting angle that we talk a little bit about in terms of the context of the British paddock. So that's interesting. And yeah, we get into a little bit around some of the stuff we chat, because I spoke to Asher, I think two days, Jim, after we'd spoken to Maddie. So some of the discussion points, which irked some listeners, (laughs) apparently, that was still fresh in my mind. So I kind of talked to him a little bit, given that, you know, the pressures financially and the, you know, the desperation to succeed and do well. Now, obviously there's a lot of, mental effort and pressure and stress that comes out of that so we talked a little bit about that as well so hopefully it's an interesting talk i hope people react to it nicely i hope people have constructive comments and criticisms if they don't like some parts of it that's fine but i think most people will take a lot from it so um yeah i'll let you close this one out jim but then it'll be a zoom zoom and we'll be into the chat with asher all right so until i back again with another show with rich ride safe and zoom zoom cheers guys Hello, everybody. I'm pleased today to be joined by a rider who competes on the British Superbike Series undercard. In this particular case, it's the ultra-competitive Junior Superstock Championship. So, Asher Durham, a very warm welcome to Motopod. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Um, Now, you and I have bumped into each other a few times whilst I tend to loiter with intent in BSB paddocks around the country. So, it's great to catch up with you, particularly now, because you've just announced your plans fairly recently for 2023. So, just to get things moving, why don't you tell the listeners who you're going to be riding for this season? Yeah, that's right. We've been um, trying to set this up for a couple of years. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I've announced, I think it was last week, that I'm riding for GNS Racing on their Kawasaki 636. Yep. I think it's my fourth, yeah, my fourth year for riding, well, a 600 and fourth year also again with Kawasaki. So yeah, I'm really excited, really happy and glad for the opportunity and show what I can do this year. Yeah, it's always a bit frustrating, BSB, I suppose, partly because of the lovely British weather. It doesn't start until well into April, does it? So we've still got a little while to wait, but um, I'm sure yeah, you're getting excited. Yeah, everyone's asking me, oh, when you out, when you out, when you out. I'm like, I'm not riding in this. No. <laughs> no, no one's riding this, you know. Far too cold. So for the benefit of the Motopod listeners, then, um, especially those of our listeners who are not in the UK, of course, um, so they won't necessarily know a great deal about you and your background. So can you perhaps tell us a little bit about how and why i mean maybe there's a family connection in terms of getting onto two wheels so how did the sort of the whole two-wheel competition thing start for you i'm sure you were very young when you got going with it yeah so it was sort of we go back in time i was about seven years old when i saw first was introduced to the to the sport of motorcycle racing i watched um at my dad's house and i was watching a race uh with a motor gp race with rossi and i think it was caparossi and caparossi 
this is this is my memory anyway. Yeah, like a kid. So it we'll might, see if we can work it out. <laughs> you know, you know. And um, I think Rossi hit Caparossi, or they touched Caparossi. Either crashed or went off the track, and then Rossi won. But then from that, I was not. I was also I was a Rossi fan and also a fan of the sport. Um, my dad, he he rode bikes on the road. So he, he was interested, was re- really interested as a kid, had like a, a stage of life where he didn't really do anything about bikes. And then at that sort of time, he was starting to get back into bikes, riding them on the road again, but you know, that kind of thing. And and then it kind of put me onto having an interest, you know, you, you want to be cool like your dad's kind of thing. So I was yeah. like, you know, and then for Christmas, not, yeah, after that, me and my sister got a like a Pee Wee 50 dirt bike to share is that is our christmas present and stuff like all the kit all the gear you know and then um kind of escalated from there we went we were well we went out that day to i don't know some field or something and and then i remember my sister went first and i saw her she she was fine kind of thing and then as i went on it i was um a bit throttle happy as soon as i went for the throttle thing books me tank slapped me off and i I hit my nuts on the tank and I was on the floor crying. Um, and then I wouldn't get on a bike for like three, four months after that. Yeah. Or I don't know what it was to be fair, but something like that. And then, yeah, after that, I started, then I started riding, obviously, and then did motocross for a couple of years. Uh, enjoyed it. But um, I mean, my dad wanted me to do that. And then he, we, uh, the idea was always to go into road racing. He just, he read Rossi's book and that's what Rossi did. So he thought, right, oh, it worked for Rossi. So I'll try it kind of thing. <laughs> I think that was his logic. And then, see, I did that for a couple of years. And then, yeah, we went to Mini Motos, did the, what now is fab. It's, it used to be called something else when I first started, like just British mini bikes, something like that. And then yeah. something called MPS. A lot of a lot of the guys will know what MPS, like the riders will know what MPS was and stuff. And and, that. and then, yeah, I went to do fab, metric kit, sight road with all the other guys now. And then went to BSB at 13. And then, kind yeah. of, you know. So I was reading that on your bio. So I think, well, certainly at the time, I, I'm guessing this might well still be the case, but when you joined, so this would have be been the 125 CC, I'm guessing That's back right. then, wouldn't it? Uh, so you were the youngest rider, I think, at that point ever to have gone into 125. Uh, is that a record that you still hold, do you know? As far as I know, as far as I know, unless someone could, um, Fred Clark will probably know. If we asked Fred, he'd, he'd give us an answer. Oh, Fred would know, yeah, for sure. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like then looking back can you quite I mean 12 years old I mean that is seriously young I mean where you are now what are you now you're 22 I'm 23 24 later this month right okay yeah. so looking back then yeah over a decade yeah can you quite believe that you were doing <laughs> that old. sort of thing at 12 years old I mean how'd you reflect on that period of yeah. your sort of burgeoning early career it was a bit crazy because I think it was three years from being on the mini motos to BSB, it was a bit like, like I was a bit like, wow, like oh, it took me back a little bit, you know, because you see all the fans, you see the grandstands for all, and I had only just got on this these big bikes kind of thing. The tank was cooked, so I couldn't reach the handlebars. I was <laughs> tiny, I was light, I was, and and we had we also had some bike problems for for a little bit, so, but because I was young, a lot of mechanics would think it was me, not the bike, because they thought I just didn't know how to communicate things and stuff like that. So it was quite. Yeah. All of it was, it was, um, I learned a lot very fast, but it was, it was very difficult. Like it was super difficult as a kid to, to progress. And, and it was only me and my dad type of thing running the, running the team. So I think looking back, I definitely would have done it a different way, but 
it, it was a great experience. And Which way might you have done it with the benefit of hindsight? If... Well, at the time, there was a, a cup called the Morawaki Cup. Okay, yeah. And that was a really, I think that would have been perfect just because of the bikes were a little bit slower, a little bit easier to ride. And it was, um, I don't know if it was Europe or it was international, but it was it was a better, I think it would have been a better, um, a better thing because it's a big group thing. It was kind of like the giant triple challenge type of yeah. setup. I think it would have been really good for me. Uh, I think, well, Rory did it. Uh, I think Dan Jones did it for a little bit and a few others, but I definitely wish I, I, I went that route instead. But It is worth pointing out, I think, because I've listened to a couple of interviews you've done with other people and stuff. And, I mean, you were incredibly small and very, very light. I mean, did you weigh sort of like five stone or something like that at this yeah. point? It might have even been less. You know what? I remember at a point when I was riding, I don't know if it was BSB, but I kept weighing myself and I wanted myself to be under four stone. Wow. Because it was, if it was three, I was happy. I don't know why as a kid, I was just, but I was tiny, like I, there was nothing on me. And I did train, I'd, I trained, it's called One Nation Boxing Gym run by uh, Clifton Mitchell. I went there and I, for years and, and so I did train and stuff. I just, <laughs> I didn't get any bigger, bulkier. Or anything. I just... <laughs> and where do you, I'm going off script already, but where do you stand on the whole small riders have an advantage thing? Because obviously this has blown up, particularly with people like Bautista in the last year yeah. and stuff, who's quite diminutive on that very fast, uh, Pandigali. So advantage, disadvantage, because I know there are merits for being taller, having sort of more levers and more weight to shift around compared with being able to tuck in sort of thing if you're smaller. I mean, have you got a particular opinion on that? I don't know. When I first came into 125s, because I was so light, I had 20 kilos of ballast on the bike, which is a lot, especially when, you're, a lot. Weigh, yeah. when you weigh that little, yeah. it makes it harder. And it is, I mean, on a superbike, I can imagine it being a lot harder being smaller around the corners it's a hard one I don't, I don't really know where I don't really know where I stand on it I think for British Superbike it's probably definitely harder as a smaller rider because of the type of track Grand Prix is a little bit different and because that Ducati was so much faster anyway it added to that with Bautista being the small weight it gave him a big advantage a lot of his passes were, weren't on the brakes weren't you know it was kind of easy for him and mm. he could pass two in one on, on a straight like it you know, it took away the racing. Like there was, there wasn't much racing racecraft with that within that. You know, I mean, yeah. If you have the power and you can pass someone on the straight, like do it. You know, mm. but but in the same same sense, like, it's a bit of a, a weird line, really. I mean, I can see where other people would be frustrated on just seeing him blast past you all the time when when you feel, especially that you're better, you're more talented as a, as a rider because you, you, everyone yeah. better than everybody as well. I do feel a bit sorry for him in a way because he's having to sort of defend that championship but in a way that I think is probably not really very fair. I mean, he just rode a great year. I'm completely off script here, but I yeah. do feel a bit sorry for him on that score without going on about yeah. World Superbike too much. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's doing what he's doing. He's doing the best he can and he's doing a bloody good job. Like, all said and done, he, he won it fair and square. He the he was in the rules. That's yeah. what it was. And yeah. it's not easy to be top 10 there, you know, let alone win, so... Absolutely. Are you, um, again, this is not kind of part of what I was planning to ask you, but given how busy you are a lot of the summer in terms of race, your own racing, do you get a chance to watch back a lot of the sort of the MotoGP and the World Superbike stuff or does a lot of it kind of pass you by just because you don't have the time? Oh, no, I watch it all. I watch, well, oh, okay. I watch MotoGP, I watch like every session more or less. I watch the FP1, 2, 3 for all classes. Yeah. Uh, Superbikes, I don't watch as much. World Superbikes. I watch British Superbikes, not World Superbikes. Yeah. Just because yeah. 
I guess adding it all in on the time is, is quite difficult. You Not know. enough hours in the day, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah exactly. My wife's forever pulling her hair out of me just sat in front of the TV. Um, <laughs> so coming back to you again, and so in terms of the national small bike classes, you were on, well, I guess it was only one or two seasons perhaps on the two-stroke 125 because then we phased into the four-stroke kind of Moto3 yeah. type machinery. But you're in that small class for, all, I think, eight years and you finished third in the championship in 2019. So... Throughout yeah. those years, I mean, it, it's well known. It's now called the Talent Cup, obviously, for as many people will know. It's a big field of bikes. I'm sure there's a big variation in, you know, the size and the quality of the teams and the amount of funding that a lot of these teams get up and down the pit lane. Could you perhaps just tell us a little bit about the, the struggles and convey how difficult it was for you from a sort of a physical, mental point of view and financial point of view, obviously, to sort of work your way through that eight-year period up to the point when you went up to the 600 stocks? Yeah, so it's it was like a bump, a really bumpy ride. So we get to like I get I don't know, twenty fourteen was probably like the the biggest pivotal year for me. Mm-hmm. So I started the year riding for Steve Patrickson on a one two five. It was my bike, but we rode in his awning as, as such and yeah, rented the space out if you like, and obviously his expertise. He helped me a lot as a rider. I was riding. I think Elliot Lodge was my teammate at the time, but we were he, Steve helped helped a lot, and then. Going on from the end of the year, it just didn't look like it was getting better. I mean, there was a big difference in one two fives back then. Like now, Moto threes, it's talent cup. They're all the same. They're yeah. all the same bikes. It's just, it has to be. That's the rules. They all have to be sealed engines. Or I don't know. If, anyway, they're supposed to be standard spec. Much more spec than it used to be in the olden times. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So the what the one two fives. I mean, I, I'd never beat Ryan. Like our bike would be nowhere near Ryan Saxby's bikes. It was like thirty grand different in mm. you know. It, it's crazy. But anyway, so we get to near the end of the year and then Creswell Racing, which is now Microized Creswell Racing, they bought a bike off someone, a Moto3 bike, which is they were new and it was a standard engine, but it had like a kit loom and a few different things. And they said to me, do, do you want to ride it for the rest of the year? And then I was like, well, we had a test anyway. We we, we weren't sure. We weren't sure what we were going to do, but we said, well, we'll have a test at Mallory, like the Wednesday before Donington Park. And we put my suspension in from my 125 onto the Moto3 because it was all Honda, so it all fitted and stuff. So anyway, we did that and I was pretty quick. So we went, you know what, let's give it a shot. And then thanks Steve for everything that he gave us and stuff. And then we went to Donington in a podium the first ever time on the back. And that was my first ever podium. Like it was, you know, that was where it all went. I mean, I knew I could do it. And then it was like, obviously got a decent bike and stuff. And then we we were there. And then the rest of the season, we're battling at the front. We didn't have another podium. And and then come to the year after, it, that that's where it all all went. Twenty fifteen, the start of twenty fifteen, we we started the year. The first race we had a mechanical. We didn't even get off the line. Then we changed teams. My, my dad changed teams and stuff. And then we had two races, crashed a lot. Then it was the money pop, just went to nothing. And he was like, right, I can't, I can't afford. We've got to stop. We'll come back. And then kind of nothing ever happened. He didn't really talk it. I think he just went a bit quiet for a little bit. So on my own back, and then I went to um, I went to go to Silverstone. I went to two races. Yeah, I went to Silverstone on my moped to go to speak to people and watch and try and, you know, get something sort of for the year after, which led to me going to Brands Hatch at the last last race of the year that year. And I met, then I met with Creswell Racing again. And we spoke about, because this was when the standard class was coming, which is now the British Talent Cup. 
it was yep. called standard class back then but it's, yeah anyway got num- like I spoke to him with my number because it was my dad that used to have the contacts and then through winter we just kept talking 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 I used to go he lived in Nottingham Shaway Strelly or somewhere around there and then I'm Derby where I was then anyway and I used to just go on my ped after after work. I, I worked at Norton Motorcycles at the time. Every evening I used to go to go there on an evening all through that winter. And we, we were just spon- get, trying to get sponsors. Um, that's when Clifton Mitchell helped me out. He helped me out a lot to get pay for the essentials. And then we kind of somehow mustered up this package that it, it was very, it was a very basic, like we had the bike and it, even when we got to the first test at Donington it literally was only out the crate like a week before it had a couple heat cycles and I was running it in on the day it was just super bog standard nothing had been changed at that point but then that year I won the second race of the year and then it kind of went a bit of a bumpy season but we, we then finished third third in 2016 and then from then until 2019 I was with the team with Microlyze Coastal Racing and we found the sponsor Microlized Bob Har- Bob Harvey we, we found actually on a job because I, I then wasn't at Norton Motorcycles and I worked for John Creswell doing driveways and landscaping which is what he does outside the managing okay. team yeah yeah and I, I was doing that and that's how we found Microlizer together that are now obviously still his title sponsor for the team and stuff so that's pretty cool and then yeah we had to, we bought the summer hinges in tw- I think it was 2017 when we bought the hinges and then Kind of went a wild ride, you know. So it's yeah. The Mahindra was known to be not the best package to be on. I think really yeah. wasn't it? Not without being wishing to be too disrespectful to that brand and that particular bike, but it was no. not the fastest bike out there, it was, was it? Slow. Yeah, it was super slow. But I've got a lot of pride in that. I, I feel like I did a, a a really good job on the bike, and that for what it was, we. we we worked hard and we didn't we never gave up with it and we we tried to get the best out of it and i think we did get the best out of it we got we got some wins and no one else could win on it and i mean look yeah. at brandon pash he was my teammate the year before he won the championship on that mahindra i think he beat me a couple times the rest of the time i beat him hands down at you know nine times out of ten kind of thing so yeah. and then i still beat him when he was on the ktm and i was on the mahindra like obviously not that's my that's my that's my bro so i'm not trying to trying to slate him but <laughs> I just think it shows how much we got out of that Mahindra, you know. We I had a really good working relationship with the team and we really like just we had a good test at the start of the year and we squeeze everything out of that bike, you know. Yeah. And with the perspective of uh, admittedly still a very young adult, it's true, but you know, looking back again as a sort of fairly green teenager let's say not not a huge amount of experience of the world and and so on I mean it, it sounds incredibly stressful but looking back can you sort of was it stressful at the time in terms of sort of living a bit hand to mouth having to squeeze the absolute maximum out of the equipment that you had sometimes as we've just been saying not the best equipment I mean presumably you, you were trying to get your education sorted out with school still at, at least for some of this period of time so I mean probably a bit crazy to look back on some of that in Asher. Yeah, it's like the most, well, it's, it's still just as stressful now, to be honest with you. Well, like, okay, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, then, to be fair, I never really looked at education because I thought of either me getting a, a job that I saw progression in, like loads of progression in, or education, which obviously then would lead to, to, to jobs in like university and stuff. But I always, I never wanted to take that route because my passion's racing. I don't, I don't like anything else like yeah. me, like, you know what I mean? Like it's quite, it was quite an easy decision for me to always put more focus on racing and stress about racing, not stress about racing. And then all, all these other things that I don't really care about. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So that, that for me, and it, and it still 
similar scenario. I mean, I've got a bit more responsibility nowadays. So it, it obviously work does take a, a toll, but my passion is still my, my about racing and I'll do whatever it takes to get on track and, and yeah. show what I'm capable of because I've not finished yet. You know, there's a lot of, I think my story still got a lot of writing. I've still got well, a lot of writing. Let's certainly hope so. Uh, I mean, you're you're amongst the right company with Motopod about people that are utterly obsessed with motorcycle racing. Trust me. So, you've mentioned a couple of names. I mean, you mentioned Clifton Mitchell. I think it was. Is there anybody else that really you know was really there as a backer and had your back and really helped to promote and get you to where you are now that you want to just sort of say a shout out for? Yeah. So I guess Darby Kawasaki was there early. They were they were like Moby Dick. They actually sponsored me like for helmets and stuff when I was a kid. When I first ever got on a mini moto. I think my dad sold Rich a bike, or he sold him his, like, he had a Z1000, and Rich bought the bike off him, that's Darby Kazaki. bought the bike off him, and then since then, it was just, there was a, I don't know, there was a bit of a relationship, Darby, local lad, just sort of yeah. looked out for me kind of thing, and then I, I look back on all my pictures, it was always on the bikes, and always has been, as Moby Dicks, and now obviously it's Darby Kazaki. so it's great how they've also grown into this big dealership, and I think they, they won... Deal- biggest or best Kawasaki dealership of the year the other week as well which is great oh, wow. how, how, you know how how far they've come as well so there's them like I say John John Creswell he was like he's like a dad to me he's always like from that 2016 without him I wouldn't have I, I, I don't know how far I could have gone without yeah. him I think it was fate and we we talk about it a lot as well because we both believe it's, it's one of those weird things in life you know where I mean, I, I believe the harder you work, the luckier you get. But that that thing was like really like sometimes I, I had to like pinch myself because the year before I was like mentally like as a kid, I'm not I'm done racing. And I remember it, at the apprenticeship, some lad was like talking to me and another racer at the time, Connor Sellers. And he was like saying, saying to me and stuff. And he was like, oh, well, at least you've had a go. At least you tried it. At least you, you can say you've done it. And I remember that pained me knowing all I've done is had like one one podium and I know I'm capable of so much more and I was like and it just ate at me and I knew I had to do when he said that I knew I had to do something because it just yeah I I just had to try and do something it was lucky that that John was there that he was also in a predicament he didn't have a bike he didn't know what he was doing for the year after it gave him something to look forward to it gave you know it sparked him a fire up in his belly and he believed in me I believed that, that we could do something together you wouldn't have thought what the team was back then. Like it, it was the same truck, but the, the roof was leaking. The whole the cabin side was, oh, mate, it was terrible. Rough. Like, not now, but it, <laughs> it, it was a bad environment. But it was all he had. He didn't, you know, he's not super rich. He he put his hand in his own pocket for, for things and stuff. And he, he took a lot of sacrifices as I did. And we both kind of, yeah. you know, did what we could. That's why I like to ask the question, really, because it's about unsung heroes in a way, isn't it? You know, up and down the pit lane, you know, there are people like John Creswell, as you say, that, you know, without them, the grassroots almost doesn't exist, really, I, I guess is really the claim way of saying it. And what I love about bike racing, it's fundamental, it's about talent, whether that's riders or, or people that work in the garages or, or whatever. But it's so much about timing and a bit of luck and just grabbing every opportunity and then working bloody hard isn't it which is obviously what you've done your whole career clearly yeah that's it I say and that's what I feel like with um right now GNS we were quite late to making the deal and stuff and contacting like we only sort of contacted each other at the start of this this year oh, wow. so really like quite fast so I was actually on holiday when I, I got sort of contacted by Ross at, at Kawasaki and then he was like 
he messaged me said that oh they wanted wanted to speak and I was, and I was like yeah no I'd love that kind of thing because I was mm. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for this season I, I mean I, I was sort of even contemplating because I didn't want to go into somewhere and not have a full commitment and not have like feel like I can win on this package I wanted to even sit out and if there's an opportunity just come in for for races and do but make sure I was ready as the season went on if you know what I mean yeah so then yeah I I saw the guys at GNS Mark Tom and and them and then I saw we kind of like had a uh, went to Castle Darlington went to a pub kind of just spoke about things and where they were at what they wanted to do and I was like and it it reminded me very much of John and and that kind of thing and how Mm. we started and just how they were you know how, how they were and felt like it was like a family team and you know and they've had they've had some good success in the past as well and I feel like it's nice to say with Kawasaki as well and I feel you know I I just it gave it gave me some like reminiscent moments and I and I know we can work together and we can really like I can prove a lot of people wrong and yeah get back on top type of thing before we sort of come right up to sort of date then and you can tell me to mind my own business if you want on this question but as you've sort of come through since 2012 I think it was were there ever any opportunities to sort of go to somewhere like I don't know CV Junior Championship in Europe and stuff I mean was you know the fact that you have to take a lot of money quite often to if not always to do that sort of thing were there opportunities that you just couldn't take for one reason or another yeah there was so we had a few opportunities there was um so Higgs actually helped me out get a con because contact to like a manager for CV on that side of thing and so I was I was really happy about that and we had like a deal a contract set with or a contract that I could have signed with uh, 658 and that was all sort of well it was it looked really good but obviously they wanted a lot of money Uh, and and it actually looked like at one point it was um a foundation I contacted and it was to do with the owner of Derby County at the time I don't know if you know what's happened with the the club and stuff in the past couple of years, but no, football's not my thing. I'm afraid someone might know. Anyway, I'll, I'll skip past that. And um, yeah, anyway, I, I had the meeting with them. Everything, you know what? It seemed really good. Like they had they had a big fund and they supported local athletes. And you know what? It went really well. They seemed like great people. And then after that, I, I kind of my heart was like, I'm going to CV the way the way it left. And then I needed an answer. December start of December I believe maybe the end of November something like that and then I needed an answer before Christmas is what I got told from the team to you know obviously get everything going and yeah and then they said oh yeah no we'll get you an answer before then nothing I got nothing from them more or less until I had to like literally post a letter because I was that like paranoid about it all that (laughs) I posted a letter in the letterbox and then eventually I got a reply from them and then it was kind of like a no, but it was really late. And it was by then, luckily, it was actually John Creswell that sorted me out. He bought me a ZX6 as a backup type. Of th- he he was quite in the background and he, he obviously wanted me to still raise. Like I just had a really good year with him. Yeah. And he actually went to that meeting with me on, in that November, December. I wanted, I brought him with me because I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> you know, asking for 150,000 euros is kind of, kind of daunting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he came he came with me to that and but yeah so that that happened and then that was kind of my dream gone and it was always I thought I might have been able to get back to motor three but it's sort of it's for that side of thing I mean that that dream is definitely fizzled out and then but I, I still love motorcycles and I still love winning and that's what I, I plan to set out doing as much as I possibly can and that yeah it's still possible to like my eyes are very set on like 
World Championship in the future, you know, you see like okay. showing how possible it is. And I believe like I'm, you know, good enough to go to go to that route. So Tashi, uh, you're going to be 24 shortly. So you're still a very young chap. You're a professional motorcycle racer. Again, just wanted to sort of scratch a little bit at what, you know, what life is like. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of daily life? I mean, do you have a regular day job or are you in a position where you can focus more on your fitness and being bike fit and stuff? So how does working or having a job in the Junior Stock 600 Championship, how does that translate in terms of what you do sort of during the week, let's say? Well, I've recently moved to Lincoln. So my whole, from Derby to Lincoln, everything the past year has literally just changed mm-hmm. at the minute i'm i'm working as it's a the job title is highway maintenance operative so it's basically doing counts council work pretty much okay so yeah curbs uh potholes slabs you know just around the city around the streets you know signs you name it like on call for like if there's an incident in the uh, the police are taking ages to clean it up or for whatever reason it might be fatal or something like that and it might be a murder or yeah it goes to a murder investigation we'll have to close the roads yeah versions that kind of thing and then mm-hmm. in the winter there's also a winter maintenance crew you know doing the um gritters and stuff and, and you know that that kind of thing so that's that's what i do in my well in my data that's 39 hours of the week yeah. and then i've got my turbo trainer set up in my garage and stuff and i do that and i run and then i also do like my own circuit so i'll go to the gym up up the road uh it's the everlast gym i mean i do really miss boxing though I, I used to do a lot of um a lot of boxing and and then it kind of like just kind of fizzled out a little bit and i did more running and cycling and i i really wish i I did a bit more boxing towards the end of that, that time where i was in derby more because i kind of i really do miss it. it was great training and it's mm. i think it gets you that that dog out of you so you know it gets that dog out of you a bit more in it and you can use that aggression that hunger because it gives you a bit more hunger doing that kind of thing you know getting hit in the face all the time and whatnot. <laughs> it, it definitely Fighting spirit yeah <laughs> yeah it definitely helped me at, at times and i and i do wish I, I could do that a bit more over here but it's a bit bit different how, how i use balance my training training and, and stuff over here at the moment yeah so yeah i think it's interesting for the listeners you know listening to this to sort of understand that you know pretty much you've got a pretty sort of regular life for yeah much of the time presumably you get some um some passes in terms of because presumably you have to be away on a thursday afternoon yeah. during the race season to get because i mean although britain's not a great big country i mean my co-host jim who lives in ohio yeah. is always winding me up because you know i can drive to a bsb round in a couple of hours from where i live mostly whereas it takes him like a day <laughs> quite often to get to the, the nearest motor america round so um but yeah it's just interesting though because obviously a lot of people will be familiar with the motor gp stars and world superbike stars and so on and you know that's a sort of certain gilded life although by no means easy but again i love walking around you know the bsb paddocks which are open and you can freely walk around because you see again you just see the real grassroots don't you and the people that are just running regular lives and then putting everything on the line financially time everything no holidays etc etc to go racing and it's you know i i remember somebody telling me you know it's all very well you know your mccams yamahas and stuff the big sponsorship deals a lot of the teams down the pit lane are happy just to get a set of tires or the money for a set of tires to get them through the next round aren't they yeah it's crazy i think that is there's a a lot of hunger in the british youth bike paddock Mm. everyone's sort of well a lot of people are on a shoestring and it's um a lot of people are just trying to make it work trying to trying to make their dreams work you know a lot like you've you've not got many many riders in there even in the even in the super bike class a lot of those riders have jobs outside yeah outside, outside racing you know it's um i, I don't know top 10 are, are kind of like 
I, well, I don't know. I don't know how it all works because you hear all these different paddock rumors. You know what it's like. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like. Some of them are paid. Some of them aren't. Some of them bring money. You know, it's all all that going on there. Yeah. Then you go further down the classes and it's all mixed. You've got like just people. Some people get really good sponsors and then they don't have to pay any pay for anything and stuff. And then you get other people that are always struggling. You know, you've got your family, your, your consistent family run teams that are yeah. just the son's riding, the dad's mechanicing, the mum's cooking food type of thing, you know, in a, in a camper yeah. van on, on the side of, a, of an awning and stuff. So you get you get a mix of everything. It's, I think it's like a cool place to see, like, yeah. you know. Yeah, and I, I mean, anybody that goes to BSB round, I would certainly encourage them to spend a bit of time walking around the support paddock, you know, which is where most of the teams are based, yeah. just to really get a flavour of what's going on. Um, I was interested in talking about training. Uh, I mean, do you spend a lot of time focusing on your fitness? Because I'm interested sometimes. I remember, I think it was Colin Edwards once, because he was famous for never, hardly ever training. Because yeah. his attitude was, you know, if you have to sort of regimentally train three times a day, five days a week, and then you miss one session, it starts to mess with your brain. So he was like, I, I just don't bother. <laughs> so how much are you putting in in that front? I mean, obviously you're not doing the boxing, as you said, but yeah. what, does, what does the training regime look like for, for Asher Durham? I do as much as I can, really, and I train more more heavily through winter than I do in the season. In the yeah. winter, you get your base, and then your, your, your summer, I kind of like just go through the motions. I do You do a lot more riding. So you get more bike fit then. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. it's just making sure I've got a good base. Then you get bike fit, and I actually lose weight as the year goes on just because I'm like not adding on as much muscle. And then by the winter, I start training again. Mm-hmm. I think I well, I had a lot of I had a bit more off time at the end of this season just because well, and actually last season because last season I bust up all my I had a arm pump surgery. I bust up. I had a big as soon as I was healed, I went bike park Wales and I, I got a big crash and I was concussed and all sorts and cut my face and arms and broke some stuff or whatever. And that was that. But then this year it was a, it was just a recovery mentally. You know, because I, I had a tough season at times. It got real rough, got real rough in the waves. And then, so I had like a couple months of just like recovering myself. But I did, did like a lot of yoga. That helps me. I've got like a, a yoga app. It's uh, it's actually really good. It's called Skill Yoga. Mm-hmm. Skills Yoga. And it's like, I don't know, it was like £45 for the year. And, you, and, I, and you've got like all these different options from beginner, medium, advanced. And that was like for mentally, it helps me when I'm feeling a bit like, I don't know, clogged up in my head and stuff. Doing that kind of gets me like back clear. And it also helps me massively just feeling better in my... It's like I've been to the... Been, had a massage and stuff, you know? Yeah. Like my back yeah. feels good. My joints feel... I just feel a whole lot better. And I try and as much as I can bring... Because it can... It's a bit... It feels a bit like boring to want to do it at times. Because, you know, I like... I like my trainer. I like going into deep depths of like pain caves and stuff like... I enjoy that. Like it gets me like gets me going whereas that's obviously the opposite but I understand that how beneficial it is even though it's so against my mindset and how I do things the benefits after it are so much so good and so much needed as well like if I've been running too much my hips get tight but as soon as I do a few yoga sessions like I'm I feel great if you go up a mountain and you've got to come down again haven't you so exactly so with the stock 600s Obviously, you spent a lot of time on the small bikes, the Moto3, let's call them. How different is the 600 physically? I mean, it's would it be right to call Stock 6 a fairly vicious physical class? I mean, there's a fair bit of, you know, rubbing is racing involved, isn't there? So in terms of your fitness, I mean, does that is it a really sort of a physical pack to be racing in most of the time? Yeah, it is. It's like <laughs> you never have a boring race. No. 
But you know what? If you look back at Moto Three, I had some good races. But what what made me realize though is how small the Moto Three bikes are and how much easier it is to be so close because they're so agile and they move so fast. You can be banging bars and it's like I was banging bars all the time and it was just it's different because on the the bigger bike, like obviously it's not it's not a, a super bike, but it, it's still pretty big in comparison. It yeah, taking that weight and that power around at high speed. You can't just flick it. You can't last minute take the, the you know the cuts like you do on the Moto Three. Like and and obviously it's a, it is a road bike essentially. It's not it's not um mm. like a, a, a GP two type of thing or you know so it's not as agile as them either. So and even maybe a super bike. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not ridden one. So yeah, you know you can position it a little bit easier on the Moto Three compared to socks. But we still bang bars. Like there's still a lot of banging bars that I've seen in lap one crashes because everyone's just trying to get. They're just yeah. animals. And they're just animals. So, it's, <laughs> and then I think it's probably more physical because it's harder to control battling at such high speeds on the bigger ish bike. Yeah, and everyone's come from four hundreds and motor three and stuff. So everyone's like trying to do it that way. And then sometimes the bikes just take a bit of control of you every now and then. And it... yeah. Oh, I can't wait for Silverstone. I don't know about you, but <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Can't wait now, if it's right with you, Asher, you're a rider of mixed race heritage. Um, your dad was from yeah. St. Vincent, I think, in the Caribbean. Is that right? And your mum's from Cyprus? Yeah. That, yeah. Well, she's half Cypriot, half English. Okay. No way to sort of dodge this fact that the BSB paddock uh, and motorcycle racing world in general really is is quite sort of predominantly white. Although I must say happily, certainly from a spectating point of view, that has actually changed quite a lot in the last few yeah, years. Like, I can definitely report that. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your experiences in the paddocks as you've sort of grown up and worked your way through these classes? I, I mean, I remember you wrote a very interesting piece a few years ago. Obviously, it was in and around the time when the Black Lives Matter thing came up. Yeah, it was obviously very, very sort of front and centre of all the news. So what's your take on the sport sort of now in terms of attitudes and opportunities? I think, think it's with everything in the world, like, now everything's moving forward with uh, diversity, 100. percent And you see, like like you just said in the in the paddock, there's there's more. So that there's more people of different races, more representation. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. More representation, even in the car world. Like it's all moving forward to be culturally appropriate mm-hmm. across the board. But I think there's with anything when it's different, it's hard because no one has ever not no one really has been able to see it from my point of view growing up. You know, as a as a mixed race kid, and just me and my dad type of thing at times. Yeah. Like you would you would get um singled out if you like at times, and you know, and there's just a bit of ignorance because some people don't see much black people or you mm. know different different races at all in this country. Like it, there's yeah. a lot, there's few places you go to where there's a big divide in 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 race color and 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 whatnot. So it's quite um you do get tricked, but I think it is slowly you know well it is getting a lot better I, i've got to say like, like the past couple of years like it makes me happier seeing it i suppose we can't although we always sort of apologize the minute we sort of start talking about formula one but i suppose you cannot underestimate the positive impact that the likes of lewis hamilton have had on global sport and profile in terms of motor racing whether it's two or four wheel yeah people slate him a lot but i i thank him a lot because it helps people think and it helps and he's just he's just using his power and his voice to just give his feelings. But from my understanding, I mean, I don't really I'm not a big F1 head, so I don't really understand it. But from what I heard, I, something like the FIA or something are trying to stop him from using his voice. Like he can't do make these, you know, that's then it goes backwards when things like that happen. Just because what's so you've got no 
you've got no voice you got you may as well not you know who are mm. you you're there bringing in all this revenue for f1 as a whole and you can't even speak up for what you you think like what 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 is that like how are you supposed to yeah be moving forward just because they don't they clearly don't agree with what he's saying because he's he's the main force of making a political statement out of everybody and they mm. just don't agree with it so they say oh, i don't agree with it so you're not doing it <laughs> that's pretty much what they're yeah i mean i, I suppose it's, up, a, it's a tricky one in terms of trying to balance sport and politics and stuff and not sort of creating mm. too much division i suppose but yeah it's a it's a an odd thing that they're doing in terms of trying to stop I mean, it's not just Lewis Hamilton, to be fair. It's all drivers yeah, the same. Yeah, you yeah, can't yeah, be yeah. making any sort of political yeah. statements, whether it's yeah. about the environment, race, what, you know, whatever. But I mean, hopefully we don't see, we see so much stuff trickling down into bike racing from car racing and from Formula One in particular. I hope that's not something that we start to see. But I mean, given your background and, you know, your heritage, would you say on balance it's been a, a help or a hindrance or is it not really one or the other particularly? You just want people to sort of judge you on your talent alone. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> no, yeah, that's literally it. That's a lot of the time people do judge me on my talent, I think. But I do also come from poverty background. Like I live, well, I, I used to live with my mum in a council house type of thing. Is it? And she was a single parent with me and my sister. Yeah. And I took, sold his house. And with that money, that's sort of what we weren't racing on. And that was kind of like, that was it. So it's also a bit different in like, I think from poverty, you, you do also get, it's going to be harder one way or another, you know, race, race is one thing, poverty is another. But like yeah. growing up, like I, we used to like, I used to come across like kids all the time, like being like, even I look back now and they were, kids were racist to me all the time, but I didn't even, at the time you're just a kid. Like I didn't, I didn't see anyone as different and stuff. So it's just like, yeah, you just went along with it and you just kind of went, oh yeah, like, ha ha ha, you know? Mm. And I think it was definitely worse in the MX scene when I did motocross. It was worse in the motocross scene than it was when I came to road racing, for sure. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it was quite. But I don't, I don't know what it is like over there now in in stuff. But that's what I, how I remember it. But if you were fast over in motocross, I don't think they really cared. It was a bit weird. It was like because everyone loved Bubba Stewart. <laughs> everyone loved him, but for, you know they were a bit weird. It's a bit of a thickle like environment. Um, I I found which is nicer because obviously road racing is better, and that's where. I always wanted to find my find my home, but time, yeah. you just get different people, you know. I mean, the paddock's a big place, so there's how many teams, how many riders, how many people, you know, how many different individuals are around the sport in that in that one paddock. You've got thirty thousand spectators. There's a lot of people, so you're always going to have like a different in in. View. I gotta say though, I mean, obviously, I'm not ingrained in the paddock like you are. I mean, I just turn up as a spectator and wander around and sort of doorstep people and have a little chat here and there. But, you know, I have to say that, well, first of all, Stuart Higgs and Jonathan Palmer and, you know, the whole MSV thing, I think it's so fantastically run and the tracks are great, you know, particularly from a spectator point of view as well. A lot of money has been pumped into making the tracks a more pleasant place for people to visit as well. But my experience has always been that it's whether you're, out on the spectator banks or wandering around you know behind the garages and stuff it is a very friendly open arms sort of place lots of children lots of families there and as I say increasingly you see more and more people from different backgrounds which is great as well and more girls turning up obviously got quite a few young girls racing in the various championships as well so I mean for me um, I think the BSB paddock's a pretty good place but obviously it's interesting to get your perspective. No agreed and it's good like with what Faye's doing and stuff like she's bringing in yeah sort of opportunities focused on you know girls coming up as well which is also adding more to the diversity in the, the, the spectrum of 
of that different viewpoint in in the paddock because I mean you've got no you've got no girls in that in the, in the classes higher up really you know you, you don't you don't really have them in when Jenny Timmers was the last one in superbikes I believe yeah, yeah. so I think it's good to try and get another superbike rider in the in the top class and it's good to have everyone rooting for a girl like you know or just someone just it makes everyone outside of even motorbike racing care a bit more when they see someone who looks like them or is like them you know it adds inclusion and it's good what what um higgs like you say in the in sort of how they run it and how they they do allow like this to just be like normal and they encourage it yeah i mean from a purely mercenary perspective and i'm thinking of as if i was a team owner or something you know the, the female demographic is let's say half of the world <laughs> so you know <laughs> there's a whole range of sponsorship opportunities and commercial tie-ups there that you know many of which don't exist at the minute so the more you can start to publicize that this is the way we're going as a sport hopefully it helps to alleviate the fact that you know there's not enough money in certain parts of the paddock even in the bsb mm-hmm. range as you were saying earlier on so you know hopefully it's in the longer term of the sport it's good yeah exactly For that gets, reason as well gets the sport thriving like it used to be like i hear stories about it when i was a when like 2006 and the the sport was booming like financially there was a, there was so much yeah. more money in the pot for different things like you even had like your Red Bull what Johnny Ray came through and stuff like the Red Bull teams in British Superbikes you never yep. get that never get any any talent system like that in the lower classes really like that yeah. give you paid rides and support you and you know take you to these training camps you don't get that nowadays mm. it's just not a thing. Yeah, I had James Hayden on a couple of weeks ago for quite a long chat. And I mean, he was obviously we were talking more about his superbike career, um, yeah. admittedly. But I mean, he quite rightly and understandably was saying it's just not right that, you know, riders aren't getting paid decent money to be racing at the top echelon of national motorcycle yeah, racing. You're risking your butt week in, week out. You you know, you're not. We're out there. We're, we're out there putting our, our lives on the line. I mean, it puts it all in perspective. Like, obviously, mm. we like. Chrissy toward the end of last year and stuff and it's like yeah. that kind of thing because he was such a personality everyone loved Chrissy like even if you didn't know him you felt like you knew him from from his podcast as well and, and just like, him in, yeah. him in, a, in a sense around the paddock like he'd always smile he'd always say hi to anybody everybody you know he was a, he was a really nice kid and everyone I think that really what well, it hit deep with me and I know it hit deep with a lot of other people yeah I think because like you say because of his profile and the fact that you know he was a real trier sort of effectively running as a privateer in BSB although it didn't really look that way I have to say and certainly yeah. because of the podcast that he and Dom yeah. had uh, obviously it still goes on with Dom and some new people now but yeah it cut really deep that one in particular didn't it and that's not to decry other people that have you know been seriously injured or worse over the years but yeah that was a it was a tough one to take that yeah I think everyone agrees that there's some people that not I think I just don't think any like like a lot of people have said this it seems like a cliche but literally I don't I've not ever heard of anyone have a bad word against him you know so I think that's also you know when when someone's known of in such a a good way only like it was only in a good way and everyone was rooting for him you know everyone wanted to see him be successful just in a general sense as well it kind of is like it just it's just a big bummer you know yeah just without sort of staying too far down the sort of the heavy subjects line, but um, yeah. uh, Jim and I, the other night, we were having a chat with a lady, I don't know if you're familiar with her, called Maddie Patterson. She was called Maddie Scordia before. So she's a, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. She's a journalist and a rider mentor. She has a sort of a, a business now where she's helping some young riders. And one of the things that she's become quite famous for, along with her husband as well, it's true, but um, is sort of advocating for better mental health facilities basically in the paddock so obviously we've got world-class medical facilities at all of these uh, venues that we go to 
but she was just pointing out that given the stresses and the strains, and particularly for the younger riders who are dealing with quite stressful situations a lot of the time, there ought to be perhaps a little bit more of a focus coming now on having some sort of a support unit. A bit like you were saying with your yoga, where it just takes you into a space where you just get to, I don't know, put things in perspective a little bit and calm down or whatever. So, I mean, any particular thoughts on whether that would be a good thing and perhaps beneficial for yourself, for example, if you're having a you know a tough weekend? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th- I didn't know they did that. So that's, um, no, I think that's definitely a big thing because as a kid, you go through all these emotions and they're all friends as well as a kid. And if your jealousy can also creep in, also, why are they doing this and I'm not? Mm-hmm. That's what you get doubt yeah. and all that as a kid. And as a kid, you don't know how to deal with it a lot as well. So it's learning how to deal with it. I mean, and if there's a fast track on learning, I mean, we're always we're always trying to learn how to understand ourselves a bit more as humans. And I think as a kid, you're even more lost. So it's definitely. I think that yeah, I think that's really good. I, I've never I never actually knew that was a thing. So that's well, she's sort of saying it should be a thing. I mean, you know, again, because we're you know in 2023 and we hear about mental health a lot, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and quite rightly so. And I mean, it's tricky, I think, because I'm sort of interested in your perspective on this. I mean. The essence of motorsport is winning and almost winning at any cost, yeah. isn't it? I suppose. So in that sense, it's a sort of an alpha predator kind of endeavor. And that, that's kind of the DNA, but it encourages a certain type of person, whether it's a male or a female, I would argue. So how do you balance that with the sort of the negative aspects of character that that can sort of bring out in people or might just be the sort of person that is in the sport? I mean, you do. I don't know if you saw that thing last year that came out. Admittedly, it was a few years old with Tom Booth Amos getting kind of physically attacked by his team you know in a garage and stuff and you know so there's all sorts of issues around safeguarding of potentially vulnerable young people that might be away from their family and so on so yeah i mean it's it'll be interesting to see if and i would if anybody's going to do it i would have thought that probably you know again msv and stewart and stuff would be the first to sort of bring something like this on board yeah no that's that's really good because i well even when people leave the sport or well, you saw Keith Farmer and stuff what's happened there and that's yeah yeah amazing talent he, he's won a lot of British champions championships and yeah. you know he, he's, he, he's no slouch and it was quite it was another sad it was like two hits you know and it was um yeah more or less straight away wasn't it yeah yeah and like everyone goes through mental health and I think it is in the in the sport it, it's hard with men's mental health like like I say like the end of this year I had a couple months off just struggling with like when you've had a bad year and stuff and you you just you're struggling with everything your your thoughts are all in like what do I do now because it's a sport that you you love so much you have the biggest excitement doing but when it doesn't go well you feel like you know just what 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 are you gonna do what do you you have to turn to and stuff and it's just like when it is your life because it is most most races life it is that's all they think about this you dream about what's what you you know you wake up you know wake up wanting to do you know every every day it's just it's just what it is so when it doesn't go well the one thing you love is the most damaging thing at the same time yeah. so it definitely yeah no it definitely could do with some help like uh, dan dan jones did a good podcast with dave i don't know if you've heard that about when he goes into mental health and stuff mm. I was, it's quite cool listening back to that because he was talking about 2019 and obviously i was racing against him that year he gives you more of an insight and on oh i didn't quite know he he was going through that as much as he was and stuff like but it's all it happens throughout the paddock and some people are better at dealing with it or it affects people deeper than yeah. you know and then people realize and we're all human right i mean some exactly. days we're up and other days exactly. we're down i mean that's just the way yeah. it is but you know and i think that i think 
even like maybe campaigns of talking more and, and, and stuff like that are definitely always a good thing because like you say it's, well, it's, a, it's a male dominated sport and and a lot of time like guys don't talk like I didn't my other half Nina she's she's been great with me this year because I've been a right knob at times you know like <laughs> when I'm down like and she didn't like we eventually had a chat about things and she didn't realize like she was getting really angry at me and stuff because I was being a knob and then like when I actually like opened up and stuff going over everything and she like actually in the movie she, she didn't have a clue but she's not gonna have a clue because I didn't tell her anything exactly not a mind reader yeah yeah exactly bottle it up and then take it out on her and it wasn't you know it's obviously not the best way it never is it never is the best way but but those guys we always we're always wrong and we always think we know best and it you know put up a yeah. shield it definitely doesn't need to be that way and it shouldn't be. And from a male perspective, I mean, motorsport, motorcycle racing is bad because it does attract alpha males and they're the sort of people that are very unlikely to, as you say, talk about stuff that's getting getting on it's top on of them. Field. Yeah, yeah, you're on track with, with 30, 40 other guys and you're all, if they see you're chinking your armour, you can't show them a chink in your armour, you got to show them you're yeah. stronger than them and you're this guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, and on track, a lot of us are, but off track, you know, you got to, we're not racing all the time and we've, we've got to have that. Nobody's invulnerable. Let's exactly. pos- okay, so positively, you're with GNS this year. What are the yeah. sort of, I know what the hopes for the season are, obviously, and we all hope, you know, we, we have a really good, good it, season yeah. and lift that championship at the end of the year. But realistically, are you, what sort of goals, and let's say going into the early part of the season with a new team behind you, what kind of realistic, sensible goals are you setting yourself? Enjoy it. Enjoy it and the results will come. Good one. Working yeah, yeah. hard now. And I know if I enjoy riding with the team and ride riding the bike, I know it's like it's a matter of time. I don't if I'm enjoy, enjoying it and everything gels, then it's that's that's all what I want. And I know if that's the case, I'm I'm there to win. Like I'm like I said, I, I don't know if I did say it, but I I um I enjoy riding motorcycles, but I love to win. Yeah, and there's nothing more <laughs> I love to do than win. And um, that's you know when it's I a drug. <laughs> exactly, yeah. it is a drug. It is a drug. And I know when things working i know i know what i'm capable of and that i know we sit we say it all the time like, like oh we're gonna this year this is our title assault and da, 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 every like you see about 40 people everybody's gonna say that yeah, yeah. of course they are yeah yeah, yeah. opportunities for this title contender and then they go up and then like like me eighth in the championship last year but you know i do really feel confident this year and i'm working harder than ever and i'm yeah Asher, obviously you want to win the championship and obviously you've got the skills and the experience to, you know, have a serious shot at it this year. But I mean, would you be satisfied with the top three? I mean, in terms of looking forward to 2024, is the aspiration to go sort of Super Sport 600, for example? I mean, is, have you got a plan in your mind that you want to sort of see happen? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's, you're never satisfied with second or third. Like, it's not really an option in my mindset. Like, I think mindset is so strong. And if you have a mindset to accept second or third, you most likely will. But at the mm. same time, it's a championship. There's 15 races. You've got to, you've not got to win every race. You've got to accumulate the most amount of points in that year. So it's also that, but I'm like, I want to go to super sport and I want to go to super bike and I want to, I want to be a super bike champ and I want to go, go forever to the world championships, you know? Yeah. So that that is my, my lifelong goal. And so me doing all of this i need to i don't want to just beat people i want to showcase my talent put big banner asha durham i'm the guy you you want to have with you i'm the guy that you need to have and that's that's the way like it's kind of like i guess a way of comparing it i mean it's very different very different but like ufc you know like if they just 
slowly beating people and they're not when they're like Conor McGregor coming up like absolutely starching these people you know everyone's got not just obviously he's he's really good at selling it that way but yeah. he was really talent wise like and he still has that talent but he was like the guy everyone he was amazing like his performances were astonishing that's what made him get further quicker as well it was like the poster boy of UFC really oh, 100%, 100%. Yeah. and that's what um that's what it is in, in a sense in motorcycle racing you need to have that star boy factor to yeah. get where you want quicker like look at max max was only in stock six last year yeah and he's gone straight straight up he's been fast tracked i know he had a good relationship with the team but ultimately he's been fast tracked to a really good solid superbike ride very and, true and that's you know that's what we all want i was one of the favorites for last year and it kind of crumbled but i'm you know i've i've refound myself and i'm yeah another year stronger yeah, a slightly unfair question to ask, and I, I, obviously I know most people would answer oh, MotoGP, but sort of honestly, if if a wild card or a substitute ride came up in one of the championships, one of the series globally, what would sort of the ideal place for you to go and showcase your talents be without putting yourself under like massive amounts of unrealistic pressure? To be honest, like right now, just British Supersport. That's yeah. what I'd be. I think I'd be ready to go there and then do a good job. Yeah. If I went anywhere else, it, even though I, I know what I'm capable of, I'm not ready. I'm not not ridden a superbike, so I'm not going to go world superbike. Never been to any of the tracks in Europe, really. Been to a handful. So going over there would be a, a waste of time. Like, I think it's, a lot of people do these things where they go straight to these places and, and experience it. But I think they experience it because it's once in a lifetime for them and they want to just experience it. Okay, I'm gone. You know, and it's like they just want to experience. Well, uh, I want to build until I can be there and belong there as a front runner. Yeah. I don't believe in, in joining somewhere to be a part of it. You in being a number on the grid, I want to be the guy that's competitive up the front, having like like when I look back on that 29, 2019 season and stuff, and I see the races, like they were exciting as hell. Like they were like some of the races were really fun to watch, and it's and I want to be that, but on a bigger stage, I want to yeah. I want to keep that going on a, on a different stage. At the risk of being unbelievably patronising, Sandon, although I can do that because I'm over twice your age. That is an unbelievably mature answer. And what not necessarily exactly what I was expecting, because you expect people to say, oh, yeah, I want to go and, you know, wildcard in World Superbike or, or something like that. But the whole build and, and belong and stay put is, is so important, isn't it? Because it's about momentum and just exactly. taking steps. Yeah. There's some people that have done these things and love has never realised some of these riders did it because they didn't last long. I mean... In some like you want to give yourself the best opportunities always, and I think like when you belong in these environments, you will show those things. And it whether if you if you go too early, you just won't show it. You know, I think I think you won't show it, and you won't get the right opportunities then. Yeah, you know, it's like people want if you're winning super sport, you'll have a better chance of going up. But if you're at the back of superbike, no one's gonna care. Same with stock thou. Like if you're at the front of stock thou, you've got a chance of going up. I think. Yeah. But if you're at the back of superbike, you you kind of stuck in a, in a sense from a, you know how like how are you going to move in a better seat to prove your your capabilities yeah as a team how are you going to sell to your sponsor oh we've got this really great great rider doing this and that oh where are they finishing and you yeah. know you know Lost what yeah but when you say oh we've got a exciting prospect as a champion he's ready to come up and we've got this training program for him to to adapt well to this bike and you know it all works better for the rider and team they've invested in you then they believe in you and it's you know i believe that's what that's what 
you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, no, it's fascinating to get your insight on that. Okay, so we'll, we'll start winding up because I've already gone over time, I'm sure. But um, just a few little light-hearted quickfire things. So two-stroke or four-stroke? Two-stroke. That's why everybody says that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if the kids will say that, though, now. I don't know if the kids, because they don't really know two-stroke. Like, I grew up, yeah. grew up on two... I had, like, four or five years on two-stroke only, and they're harder to ride. So you learn more as a rider and they just smell they just they just yeah i mean i wouldn't to be fair though i don't know if i'd i'd buy one just because it's maintenance man I'm, i ride bikes i'm not the most clued up in like hanging <laughs> inside the thing and running the thing so it's like it's more it's a lot it costs a lot more to run a two-stroke for sure but there is a sort of a, there's a purity about two strokes a simplicity but also a finicky exactly. kind of hard to get the right yeah, zone yeah. exactly they're, exactly they're, they're sort of thoroughbreds Exactly. And I'd rather I'd rather have a two stroke just sitting there, you know, like not on the wall or something like that. Like a, it's that type of thing and stuff like you run it up every now and then get the smell of it, you know, just always give it a clean type of thing. Just, yeah. you know, make sure, you know, just general, not not for riding, just for like admiring. Drooling. Yeah. yeah, yeah OK. Exactly. I think yeah. you, you've already answered this question earlier on, I think. But favourite rider growing up? Oh, Rossi. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And th- this is my sort of signature question that we try to ask whenever we speak to riders, ex-riders, whoever. Any, so, so there's kind of like a history element to this. Any bike, any track. So you could choose to ride any bike from history right up to present day on any track from history right up to present day. Right. What's your dream track day? That's a difficult one. Ah, I love, mm, this is a hard one. I love Assen. Assen is such, and it suits me as a rider, I think, down to the ground. I think that was, like, one of my favourite. Ah, oh, I don't know. Bruno looked like a really good track, you know. Yeah. i say probably, yeah, I'll go, I reckon I'll go with Bruno. Yeah. And this is, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to do the political answer, Kawasaki. I want a Kawasaki <laughs> round round Bruno. That's what I want. GNSA and Kawasaki around there. Like a good company man. Yeah. <laughs> 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 maybe uh maybe one of the old uh 990 cc MotoGP oh. kawasaki's that'd be right around for now yeah i'd probably kill myself but <laughs> i'd have fun before i did <laughs> it's a travesty really that bruno's gone off the championship calendar now yeah it yeah, is. i'm not sure if it's funding i know it's starting to get a little bit tight on safety grounds with the speed that the MotoGP bikes are going yeah um, but it's, it's a great shame cool. great shame that it's gone okay so bruno on on a cower well yeah. Asha, I think we need to sort of start wrapping it up because you've got a Friday evening to enjoy. Um, any sponsors you want to give a shout out to? Because I know how important it is, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that you give a shout out to the people that support you. And hopefully as a result of being on this show, that will bring in some more support as well. Yeah, no, you put me on the spot now. I've got to think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you to like, I've got Momentum Recruitment, uh, Tony and Liz. Tony and Liz are, are, are a couple that own a farm. They're just like, well, I, I met them via John Creswell and stuff, and that's how that's all bloomed and stuff. But they're really great people. Mm-hmm. Um, do a lot for me. LS2, Paul, Paul at LS2, Knox, Gloves, or Derby Kaisaki, like I said. Of course. Yeah. Of course, of course, of course. And I, I presumably GNS have got a web page that people can go across to and look at uh, all the support that they've got as well, presumably. GNS, yeah, G- yeah, yeah, yeah. Check out everything on their side of things as well. And then I've also got, oh, I thought, oh, Cycle in Jamie at Cycle in uh, local bike shop in Beeston. Yeah, nice. uh, done right, done right. It's like it's one of those cool. It's a small bike shop, but it's done right. You know, you get great service there. Yeah. And what about on uh, social media? Are you sort of are you, do you bother with Twitter or do you stay clear? Because I mean, Twitter can be a little bit of a <laughs> um, pain in the ass a lot of the time. But yeah, I'm on Twitter. To be fair, my press release, if you like, well, 
when I, I put it on Twitter and stuff and announced obviously what, what I was doing for this year. I actually got my biggest likes on, on Twitter. So oh, it's popping at the minute. It's only it was only like I don't know, 80 or something. But for Twitter that I was quite proud with that. So I'm not normally on the, you know, on the Twitter with like replying to other people's stuff, you know, how it gets all crazy on Twitter. Like I just watch it <laughs> yeah. and, and laugh at other people's stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I like Twitter for that. But yeah, I've got Twitter at Asher D64. Then I've got, I, I, I'm more active on Instagram, which mm-hmm. is Asher underscore D64. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, Instagram seems to be the go-to place, really, for people, particularly in the bike racing community. I think it's a safer space than Twitter is, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I saw my boy, Brandon, he's got, like, 166K wow. followers out of nowhere. Like, I mean, he was all, he's, all, he's always good on Instagram, and he's always good on his socials, but he, like, posted some video. It's gone viral. And he's just got like all these followers because I mean, I think that shows you how important like things like social media is to have such a backlog because all these people wouldn't have just followed him if they didn't like what he already had. No, exactly. I mean, that is is the the, the landscape, you know, the ecosystem that we live in commercially nowadays. You can't be without social media. So from a rider's perspective, it is obviously increasingly important in, in, in giving you profile and attracting support i mean that's what we're trying to do in a very very small way by you know interviewing you because hey it's great to talk to you you're very interesting you've had a great career so far and a great career to come and but hopefully it you know shines a light on people that aren't necessarily you know you're not in the bsb yet uh, and hopefully that's something that will come but you know hopefully it helps to people to follow you and to see how you get on in the championship this year and um yeah to help you keeping on with the momentum exactly and then additionally i've got asherum 64 on facebook page and i'm also on linkedin linkedin yeah i remember what my linkedin is it's easier to find people on linkedin though just by putting the name in so yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can perhaps try and put some links to some of this stuff on the uh, yeah. on the show notes as well when this goes out so Asha, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been a great. I mean, we've gone through well over an hour already, so I was expecting it to be a bit shorter than that. But um, as ever, you know, once you get chatting with people that have got lots to tell, yeah, the time goes on. So it's been great. Perhaps we can catch up again at some point later in the year. I'm sure I'll bump into you in one of the paddocks at some point. I'll probably go to the Silverstone test like I normally do. So best of luck for the season ahead. I hope you have a really good one. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And let's hope this shows good luck. Absolutely. All right. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Cheers.